Hey everyone, it's Wayne here. Just wanted to give you a little uh, heads up about the show. This is our first official Swapcast that we did last night with Jared Murphy and Jim Goodall from Not Aliens. In this show, we talk about their Belize expedition and get into a little bit of uh, Newtonian and Einsteinian physics and time travel and had a really great conversation. However, it doesn't start really picking up in the conversation until Jared joins us after dealing with some technical problems. So you'll hear Jim and I talking at the beginning here. So just wanted to tell everybody thanks for watching and listening to the first official swap cast between Not Aliens and the Michigan UFO sightings and paranormal encounters. So enjoy the bonus episode. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast, coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin. I'm Michelle. And I am Wayne. And we are a Michigan-based husband and wife educator and podcasting duo that after having a UFO sighting in March of 2018, have started to examine UFOs and other paranormal topics within Michigan and beyond. Topics include UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, ghosts, alternative history and archaeology, cryptids, and all things strange and paranormal. So sit back, grab a drink, and come along with us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. Live from New York. That's a good to go. It's Saturday night. <laughs> Absolutely. What's going on, Mr. Goodall? Oh, I'm just, uh, I've been battling my uh, publisher. It's, you know, I have a British publisher. And so, well, you can't have that there. It's been, it's been printed before. I said, it's, it's information from a U.S. Navy website. It is the only information that's available on that particular subject. So we're either going to use it or we're not. But I'm I'm tired of trying to massage it and, and uh, get it you know get it fixed. Yeah. But but it's my uh, my uh, Nautilus to Columbia class book, and they've already said well you can't use any of the any of these shields that the Navy has authorized for every you know for every boat because we you know we can't find a, a source saying that their public domain. Yeah. And I said, anything that the Navy you know, creates belongs to the American taxpayer. That's what I am. Yeah. And well, just, hey, Jim, just yes, before, before we get into the, get into the meat a little bit, let's uh, say hi to everybody out there. Hey, everybody, Jared is on his way. He is having some technical issues. We could hear him, but he couldn't hear us. So that's why he's not here right now, but he'll be joining us shortly. So yeah. Jim and I yeah. are just kind of holding down the fort till he can get back and make sure everything's good. So Jim, as you were saying, Hey guy, how's it going? And Aaron's energy three, one, three. How's it going? Good seeing yeah. you. Yeah. Hey, Missy Jane. So and uh, straw dog. Yeah. Good seeing you guys, man. 
Yeah, I was a little, I was a little bit up, you know, concerned with my publisher. We were talking about my publisher for those who just come in, and uh, it, they're they're from Britain. Now they did a great job on my seventy five years of the Skunk Works book, but they're just giving me nothing but uh, heartburn mm. on my newest book. So I just I told them and said this is this is where this is where the information comes from. You know, everybody's going to have the same information. And if you don't like it, just take them all out, throw them away. I don't care. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's about it. But um, I, you know, for the last every ever since we started talking about going to Belize, uh, I've been looking for my camera bag <laughs> and and my Harley boots. I don't have hardly anymore, but I, you know, the boots are, you know, great boots are, they're high. You know, we're going to be in snake country and you, you know, there's a chance you can, you know, twist an ankle, break an ankle. And at my age, you just shoot me, you know? Uh, but I tearing the house apart. I went through every single you know place you could hide a camera bag and a set of boots and, Found nothing. I'm ready to empty. I have a walk-in closet. My wife has a walk-in closet. She goes in and arranges things every once in a while for me because she's wants to do, wants me to be happy. And I can't find anything when she does it. So I'm moving. I moved some shirts around in in a shelf. I didn't even know the shelf was in my closet because the shirts were up against, you know, covering them all up. Was my for? I mean, literally heartburn. It's a couple thousand dollars for the cameras. Oh yeah, and you know the boots were you know almost two hundred bucks when I when I got them. So it was a long time ago. They're paid for. I just didn't want to have to go out and buy a new pair of boots. <laughs> so I mean, these are big clod hoppers. So I should do well in the jungle. Uh, Jared will get get into it when he when he finally gets back yeah. on. But yeah. Yeah. So. Once again, just real quick, Jim, uh, this is Not Aliens on YouTube yep. with a special swap cast going out on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast out on our Facebook group and our YouTube channel. So we are uh, once again at it hanging out. And thanks to everyone who has joined. Uh, we got Aaron's Energy. We've got Guy Merritt. We've got Missy Jane. Let's see, who else do we have? Because I'm looking at two different screens. I think I saw Straw Dog. I saw Lost in the Dark podcast. Burton, how's it going, my friend? Good seeing you. Um, who else do we got? I think that's everybody for right now. So welcome, everybody. Uh, Jared's having a little bit of technical issues. That's why we started a little bit late. But uh, Jim and I are here to <laughs> kind of talk about things for a little bit, get prepared for Belize, and... Uh, Seeing what's going on, man. So, yeah, I and and again, I'm uh, I'm not usually the the master of ceremonies, so uh, I apologize for that. Not that no, not a problem. Where, but yeah, I just found out 20 minutes ago that I was going to come on. So you know, oh, <laughs> one of those. Okay, yeah, yeah. I know. I you know. Every once in a while, I get a and I get an alert saying. Uh, you know, we start, you know, it says where you are. We're, you know, we started uh, about five minutes ago. And I said, oh, Jason, you know, you, know, you started where? <laughs> and send me a link. 
So. Uh, Aaron, Aaron asked me, are you going to Belize too? I am not going to Belize, Aaron. Um, not this, not this roundabout, but next year I will probably be going probably at 95%. I'm going to be going next year. So uh, just um, a, a brief bit of what, uh, Jared told me earlier today, last night, he was going to give, give me a call back and never did. It turns out he was with John all night. I mean, talking. He figured it was going to be, he was going to meet him for lunch and it was postponed to dinner and it went on forever and ever. But it's all positive, all real positive. Yeah. He, did, he did say that uh, there is a, uh, a, an ice cold spring coming from, from the Andes down by the... Uh, where the uh, mouth of the deep river is and uh, the Caribbean. And it's, uh, they said it's, it's ice cold. They said it's probably about 35 degrees. Even on the hottest day, it comes out, you know, freezing cold. Said he's always drank it direct, you know, directly out of the, uh, out of the spring. I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want a case of the, what they call the green apple quick step. <laughs> Montezuma's revenge. Yeah. Yeah. The trots. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to go to uh, uh, REI tomorrow. I was going to do it today, but ran out of time. And yeah. uh, I'm going to get uh, a, what's it, a quart or a pint size filter. I just pour the, you know, pour it in. Yes. And yeah. I'm also going to get the, the straw. It's about this big. Well, it's about this size. Can you see me? Oh, I don't know if you can see me. No, it's it's uh, putting your background on it. By the way, uh, Missy Jane asks about your background. She says, uh, uh, let's see, where did it go? Um, Jim, your background is cool. Where is that? So I see the B2. Uh, that, that's it. Anderson Air Base in Guam. I'm, uh, I've written books on the B2. And one of the exciting things about that is uh, when Michael Schratt, uh, Joe Christopher Payne and I had a chance. I, I was invited by Elon Musk uh, to give it get a tour of SpaceX. How did uh, that go? By the way, I oh, it was it you. was. You can't take any pictures inside, but it was it was cool. I mean, he he knows what in the heck he's doing as far as a production plant uh, goes. The walls are glass. There's no opaque walls in the production facility. Oh. Uh, the clean room where they were when they were building a dragon capsule was, you know, you can walk walk all the way around it. You know, there were there were a half a dozen Falcon nines off to the left, uh, near the uh, the west side of the uh, facility. There's a they were building the fairings for all his uh, uh, Starlight uh, satellites. When we're coming in, you go down a real dark uh, hallway, and if you look up, there was a you know a bunch of wavy things that looked like it's a, it's a uh, solar panel. And then you get to the far end, and this thing is a, like a four by eight sheet of plywood, and it's only about eight inches thick. But that's the Starlink, the Starlink satellite, and he has I can't remember, I don't know how many hundreds he has up there now, but. He's pretty much circled the the earth with them, and it was just cool. Then you walk in, and they have a, a sort of a separator. It's one of the legs off of uh, the uh, Falcon Nines when they come down, when the uh, the arms come down. The thing is huge, 
then uh, as you walk in there, next to the production facility, you know, next to the clean room, and there's, you know, they were doing, uh, uh, was it uh, your uh, manufacturing printing of titanium parts? And they had some examples out on a shelf. These things are complex. I mean, I'm just, it's just amazed. Said you can't go in, you know, the room where the titanium is being uh, melted and you know put down. It says you can't be in there because this stuff is toxic. I guess. Yeah. Environment, but yeah. they they have an incredible cafeteria. I mean, it's like it's like a buffet you'd get on a uh, in a uh, an expensive buffet. And you can get you got a hot you, know, you got you know hot uh, line. They got a cold line. You got desserts. Uh, all the ice cream you want for nothing, and everything is done with their ID card. the The oh. food the food is at cost. Okay. So, and people come and go, you know, all day long. Whatever you know, they're required to put in, you know, forty hours a week. And if you do it all in two days, that's all, and, and gets the job done. That's all Elon uh, uh, cares about. So I mean, just the whole the the energy and the way that you know the place is run is just you know it's just amazing. But prior to that, we were uh, uh, I went by you know, Brookhurst Hobbies. I used to build model airplanes for a long, long time. I haven't in about forty years. Man, I had to pick up my favorite airplane, the quarter inch Ravel, brand new SR seventy one kit. And it, I mean, they have two motors. I mean, it really looks good. Everything I read about it, it sounds really good. But we had some time to kill, so uh, Michael Schrantz said, "Well, let's let's go over to Northrop Grumman. They have a gift, you know, they have a gift shop there. It's it's an open campus at Manhattan Beach. So that's where we went. Went to the gift store. Now I had with me a damaged one of my damaged B two books. The top of the spine had been dropped in shipment. You can't sell it, and to give it away to someone, you know, that's you know." I'm giving this to you because it's damaged. That doesn't go very well. So uh, I had it with me and I'm, I I wanted to get something on the B-21 Raider t-shirt or, you know, preferably one with an embroidered patch yeah. or whatever. And they just had a t-shirt and they found one my size. And I asked, well, you don't have anything on the B-2? And he said, well, we could surely use it. So I said, well, maybe you need one of these. I pulled out my B2 book. It's hardbound, 160 pages, all color. And I cover all the flying wings from the uh, uh, you know, N1M uh, all the way up to the, uh, you know, the B2. The B21 wasn't created yet. So I, I, she's looking through it. She's getting all excited. She says, I have to see, oh, there he is. She says, I have to send it off to my boss. Can you hear? Can you hear us? Yeah, everything's great with hey. a long Microsoft reboot update that I didn't ask for. Everyone. Oh, uh, okay. okay. So I'm gonna finish what I was saying. So uh, she, she sent it to her boss, and then she called me up. She was so excited about. It. Then she sent it to her boss. This is my book. He called me up, and we have a lot of things in common. He's been at Northrop Grumman for. Uh, almost 40 years. He's responsible for all public events, the gift stores and everything else. He's done a lot of things here at Northrop Grumman. And he wants to, he's going to order enough of my B2 books for all the Northrop Grumman facilities. 
Nice. And he said, since if you like airplanes and if you like the B-2, it's just natural you would like the SR-71. So he's going to order a whole slew of my SR-71 books for their gift store. Nice. And he said, would you like to do a, would you like to do a book signing here at Palmdale at Site 4 where they're building the B-2? And he said, you know, please, beer, bread, beer bear, don't throw me in the briar patch. I said, absolutely. So yeah. when, we're, when we're ready, uh, when they get the books, they'll let me know and I will make arrangements to come out there and do a book signing. And I'm gonna make sure everybody there that I, I get a book, you know, I, that I sign a book for. And I told uh, Lou, I said, when you make the announcement, tell them anybody who has any of my books at home, if you wanna bring those in, I'll sign those as well. But I'm gonna get everybody in my card specifically because I want, uh, I, I really, really want, I want inside people or people that are working on the B-21 to be my friend because I want to do a book on the B-21 eventually. So that part's done. Now we're back to our, you know, our, our host with the most. Yeah. Our regularly scheduled program. Yes. Hey. Well, in reality, I mean, Jim and I have been doing this together. So quite frankly, I think I should come in late more often and let Jim just start the whole thing. <laughs> no, that, I mean, that's why, I, that's why I don't have my own podcast. There's just too much to, you know, to worry about, too much to have to pay attention to. That is very true. So I'm just, yeah, I'm, just I'm just happy, you know, just the way we're doing it. Well, I will be, uh, you know, I'm still doing it in a way portable. So like a lot of the equipment here is not, I'm just not set up. I'm not on my uh, regular uh, pr production computer. It's still a portable, you know, still a laptop and it's been a good laptop, but man, just like tonight is a reminder, um, you know, it's said, Hey, my death is near. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your, your, your mic isn't uh, working as well as it normally does either. It's not all right. How about now? Well, it just sounds it sounds echoey. Maybe it's just the room you're in, but okay, sound right. echoey and tinny. Okay, so how about now? I changed the filter and I turned up the mic response. How does that sound now? Uh, pretty much okay. the same. I so, think. I, I don't know. It. I mean, we can hear you, but usually no, you've got that booming mic. It just. Well, how, awesome. how about now? No. It's a little bit tinny, but you're fine. Yeah, you're fine. About it. Well, while we're catching up, thanks everyone for joining us. I can try to fix my apparent, uh, oh boy, echoey, weird audio needs. <laughs> um, it's so funny in the uh, general settings. Usually there's a, nope. Uh, I have everything set as normal, except uh, volumes, everything. Um, how about... How about now? No, it's the same. Oh, <laughs> right. you, but you're asking you're asking someone who's hearing impaired, so maybe Wayne should answer that question. <laughs> okay. How about now? No, it sounds the same. For whatever reason, it just sounds like you're coming from like a very small mic, and I know you have a very good mic. You know and why? You know why? You got everyone watching, this will be on recorded history forever. Here's why it sucks. Because <laughs> You're listening to me on my laptop because in my hurry to get ready, guess what's not plugged in? Oh. <laughs> well played, uh, sir. Well played. 
well played. <laughs> yeah, I meant to do that. Now let's yeah. see what happens. All right. Now, now if I plug it in and let's watch this magic switch. Here we go. Uh, audio, everyone, thank you for joining us. We have so many things to talk about. Uh, let's go. You might, to need to, you might, you okay. might also. And, oh. oh, gosh, I just, you know, what's hilarious is if I was to change the speaker settings. What was that, Wayne? I said you might need to also change your settings in uh, StreamYard as well, not just on your computer if you're switching microphones or your inputs. But yes, hey, just real quick, everybody, thank you for joining us tonight. This is a special last minute swap cast of alien, not aliens.com with Jared and Jim, and then myself over here at Michigan UFO sightings and paranormal encounters. So, uh, we are streaming. Oh, wait a minute, Jared. I sounds good. Oh, Let's do see. I sound normal now? Oh, yeah. Now, there now, you, now go. you sound like turn you. that game down a little bit. You're going to blow <laughs> us up. <laughs> uh, how about now? Where's your yes, sir. now? Too low. Um, now I you're a little too, too low. Oh, boy. You guys, it's Goldilocks sound testing. Everyone live. Hello. There you go. That's how good. about now? Yeah. Okay, then I'm going to shut this down. And yeah, thanks, everyone. It is. Are, are you streaming this, Wayne? Yes. So this is live on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast YouTube channel and our Facebook group once again. So we have a cool. very special swap cast going on. Thanks oh, to Jared cool. and Jim. That's yeah, great. which like Jim has devout, uh, disavowed any knowledge of how to make this happen. He's strictly a guest stripper on this broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but at, I do like this, Jim. I think maybe like I should just mute myself and you should just like take it away and then we'll just, uh, you know, bat it back we'll and go, forth every now and then. Yeah, we'll we'll go play uh, poker for a little bit and then uh, jump back in and say, that's great, Jim. What about this? And then we'll go again. Wait, we're supposed to talk. I, I uh, Jim, I would, I've been made aware of a hypothetical supersonic um bomber or plane that nasa produced that goes mach 9 but i don't know if that's true or not and well, before were, even and is that is that true yeah they were they you know, they called it the orient express and it was the i think it was the x30 they also had the x33 that they were working on and that was a single stage to orbit uh or two stage yeah you know, yeah i think a single stage to orbit uh, craft but the uh the Orient Express or the X-30 uh, was something that they were working on and operates scramjet. It goes Mach, it goes Mach 9, uh, between months, Mach 6 and Mach 9. But uh, Congress decided it wasn't worth the effort to, you know, to uh, put money into it. So like they're really good at, you know, something's coming right up. It's looking really good. Uh, I lose my interest. It's, it's like squirrel. And their, uh, yeah. and their mind is somewhere else. So that's our Congress for you. If it can't be in black, we don't want it. Right. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> that's my. That's been my policy. Black or really dark gray like this one here. Yeah. If, um, you know, and, and this is a side note, but Wayne, I feel like if you can have a goatee and no other hair, I think the alien should have a goatee behind you. Oh, yeah. yeah. This guy? Yeah. yeah, I agree. But 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 and since then, it's centered on the on the frame, and so is 
Wayne, you, you wouldn't be able to see his goatee anyway. Yeah. We need it. We need, we, we need your, yeah, we need that guy. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. That said it. There we go. Yeah. Support me. Support my You know tool. what? For those that don't know, Wayne, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, service? Sure. You mean back when I was in? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. I was told at the age of 17 by my mother, by the time I turned 18, I better have a plan because I was out the door. <laughs> <laughs> and so I took that to mean sign up for the military. So I enlisted in my junior year of high school. I sh then graduated and shipped out three days later. I went down to Fort Benning, Georgia for infantry school. I signed up for the infantry and was sent to the 101st Airborne Air Assault Division, went to Air Assault School, um, which was one of the toughest schools imaginable to try to get through. And uh, they make them all difficult to see if you'll hang, you know, if you can hang with the big boys or not. Like but I was a tank killer at first. So my first job was, uh, was uh, using a tow two missile launcher on the back of a Humvee. And my main purpose was to blow up tanks at about three miles away with a missile. I could steer by wire and hit the size of a dime through smoke, through nighttime. It didn't matter. And then I uh, went back to airborne school. I got selected to go to airborne school, learning how to jump out a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> could have landed not, you there. Not very smart, but you know, the, the life of a young and dumb, you know, killer wannabe. And then, uh, yeah, jumping out of C-130s, then 141s. And uh, how much were you carrying? What's that? How much was on your back when you were landing? Uh, you, anywhere from 50 to 100 pounds, depending on the, the layouts we were doing. And uh, I know you were almost your exact same military weight, but what were you cutting back then when you were dropping a hundred pounds? On oh, your back? dude, dude, I was like, geez, I mean, you're you're nothing but muscle and bone by the time you get through all your training. So you're looking at, I'm five foot eleven. I was about 175 pounds. So, you're, so you're dropping you? with two thirds of your weight and yes. landing on. So. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people people don't appreciate exactly, you know, they made you into portable pack mules, which I think was a bad idea. Yeah. And, you know, uh, my MOS was 11 Bravo. So 11 Bravo is the Army MOS um, 11B, which is infantry. And we always used to call it, you know, 11 bullet catcher because our life expectancy was about 32 seconds on the battlefield. That's how but, they rated you out? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, then when I was with the 101st, we were dopes on ropes because we, we didn't, we didn't parachute out of helicopters or airplanes. We repelled out of helicopters, usually onto roofs. And, you know, we would set up overwatch and have snipers set up. And then we would, you know, sometimes enter buildings through, you know, the top like that. So yeah, <laughs> set of balls with a Z. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. So, I mean, um, you know, like, like Wayne said, that he was 175 pounds. And when I was at basic training 60 years ago, the uh, everybody was, I mean, everybody that was six foot tall went from 130 to 250 pounds. 
by the end of 12 weeks, everybody was 170 pounds. Yeah. Or 175. Yeah. They just, I mean, that's just what they do. They beat the hell out of you, try to make a man out of you. And, you know, one of my funny things, I had my, uh, I had a T.I. chew me out. I'm standing in a garbage can. And his face is about this far from me. And he's just chewing my butt out. I'm standing in the sun. This is May in San Antonio. And all of a sudden, you ever get in that point in your life where you're going to laugh? And no matter what you do, you can't you can't stop from laughing. <laughs> and I yeah, just I want to start laughing. About that. I mean, he's, he's look at hell so f- funny. I said, nothing, sir. Don't hand me that. He says, says, doesn't this bother you? No, sir. What do you mean, no, sir? I said, doesn't this bother you? I said, compared to my dad, you're a rank amateur. And boom, and knocked me, you know, knocked me out of the, you know, over the, on the garbage can. I got back up, got back into the garbage can, and we started it again. Yeah. And this is going on for about 45 minutes, and all of a sudden, I can feel that damn uh, laugh coming up, and I couldn't stop it. And all of a sudden, I burst out laughing. And he's, what's up, John? I'm funny now. I said, nothing, sir. And he came, I mean, he's, he's right up, right, right here. Don't hand me that. You're going to tell me what's so funny. I said, "Well, sir, it's. I think it's. I think it's really sad that a grown man's acting like a three-year-old." And boom! Then he went into the barracks. He got my footlocker, threw it out the window, along with all my clothes. And he says, "You're no longer in this squadron. You better go find a new home." <laughs> this is a Saturday. So I brought everything over to the first sergeant's office, and, uh, and of course, no one was there. And I had a buddy of mine who was permanent party, and we went, went to Medina Lake and went water skiing and swimming that whole weekend, drinking beer, just having a good time. Got back to the base at uh, about midnight on that Sunday. And um, 6 o'clock in the morning, I was in the orderly room waiting to find out who my new squadron uh, is going to be. So we ended up with Sergeant Poindexter. And no one messed with his babies, as they called us. It oh, boy. Just, it was interesting. It was interesting. I've got one for you, Jim, a real quick one. When I was first down at Fort Benning, Georgia for basic training before my advanced uh, infantry school, um, it was probably about the third weekend, and we had some of the the biggest drill sergeants. And there was the the one drill sergeant that was kind of – we had four of them for our platoon. You know, we had a, a big platoon of about 50 guys. And our company was about 200 guys. But in our platoon, um, it was Drill Sergeant Fields. And he was a big, mean-looking, just big You don't forget those those names. But what I found out was he was from Detroit. And so was I. So I, you know, listening to him talking stuff and kind of eavesdropping. And one of the worst things that ever happened to me and, and thank god i kind of like talked to him a little bit about you know hey i you know drill sergeant i understand you're from detroit yeah what of it scrub you know he's calling me all kinds of names <laughs> yeah that was a nice that was a nice yeah he was calling yeah and i could tell he was he was putting on an act so i'm like okay all right but he got me good one one morning you know when you're in basic training it doesn't matter what kind of shape you're in you have to load up the calories because they want you eating and having food and being hydrated for the day. 
So I'm standing there going through the breakfast line and they're like, grab everything, every plate that you can, you grab everything. So I grabbed a plate of eggs. They had bacon. I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, I'm eating better than at home and come up to the cereal bowls. I grab a cereal bowl. I grab a box of, you know, the little like the little boxes of cereal back in the day. I grabbed the box. I put it in my bowl and I feel this breathing on the back of my neck as I'm sidestepping. And I'm like, and I hear what do you got there, boy? And I, it's drill Sergeant Fields. And I'm like looking over my shoulder. I'm like, uh, and I look down at the bowl. I said, well, I got breakfast drill Sergeant. And he's like, no, no, what kind of cereal you got boy. And I look and it's nuts and honey Cheerios. And so I go, Nuts and honey drill sergeant. What'd you say? What'd you say? He threw my plate and everything across the floor. He took me outside, man. And he beat the crap out of me. Like pull-ups, sit-ups, push-ups, and just beat on me for like a half hour straight, smirking the whole time. You know, don't ever pick up a box of cereal called nuts and honey while you are at basic training. They don't look fondly upon that. <laughs> So wow. that started a that started a very interesting uh uh what was I there for eight weeks for basic and then another six weeks for infantry school. So yeah, it was a yeah, so that became my worst cereal ever to <laughs> that's my favorite. Yeah, nuts and honey. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Oh I'm trying to think about that. So for those that don't know, Jim and I um have spent some time. Uh, with him hosting, and you are a cereal fan, I will out you for that. You definitely enjoy your cereal, but I don't recall it being nuts and honey. No, it was honey nuts. Oh, yeah. All right. Honey uh, nuts I, Cheerios. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't probably know had the same reaction to your, your your. Yeah. I think I think that I called it. I think I called it <laughs> nuts and honey. You know, it's instead a, of honey nut Cheerios. Yeah, because there, like, there is a nuts and honey. Uh, cereal of some sort maybe that's what it was then because all, all i know is when i <laughs> yeah. looked at it i saw nuts and honey and you know yeah. when you put those two words together in basic training to a to a drill sergeant they don't care much for that <laughs> my, my most my most terrifying encounter in basic training was from a female ti oh god yeah i was i mean here i'm i'm wet behind the ears i I hadn't, I've never, had never been kissed. I was still sweet and innocent. I mean, I've been shaving for two years, cut myself both times. <laughs> yeah. In basic, I didn't even put a razor, a razor in my razor holder because I, I just, I maybe do it once a month, but I'm going there like I'm shaving in the morning. So everybody sees me shave and it was, you know, it was baby, but smooth. But I hadn't shaved because I couldn't grow a beard. I couldn't grow a goatee or a beard today to save my life. Mustache, yeah, but not a not a beard. But uh, I was talking. I was talking to this young girl in in the line. I was I was KP duty at the uh, female. They call them WAFs back then. Women of the Air Force. And this lady who looked just like my grandmother came over and she ripped me up one side and down the other, cut me to you know, pieces, you know, fed my heart to the dogs. I mean, she, I mean, I was terrified. <laughs> so yeah. um, I can say what she said, but uh, 
you know, we have restrictions on profanity on this on this channel. So I, I'll. I know we eventually got to switch this to Rockfin so we can uh, yeah go to town. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm on Rockfin, everyone. I just don't post because if anyone wants to teach me how easy uh, um, OBS is, then we'd be running. Uh, mm. I know, right? Yeah. But yeah, so Wayne, I got to ask you since of the dumpster story that Goodall just said, or any worst case scenario, like the dumpster, anything? You mean in the trash can, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, man. Well, okay, so. Oh, things we, that you can say on our channel? <laughs> yeah. Well, right. I got... I got kind of in trouble during a night of doing bivouac where you spend a couple of weeks out learning how to set up things in the field and stuff. And so they wanted some of us to go and spy on some of the other companies because we were doing like war games. So me and my uh, battle buddy, that's what we used to call each other, went and we found where the other company was camped out. And I snuck in there into their camp and the uh camp the the company commander was asleep in the tent and i went in there and i took a sharpie and drew it across his throat while he was sleeping and <laughs> snuck out and uh the next morning when we we came back there was a jeep that had flown down the road <laughs> or actually it was a humvee was flying down the road and came to our camp and here's this captain standing there looking for the the private you know third class that pulled this kind of shenanigans boy and man <laughs> i didn't say a word and i threw that sharpie out but no i didn't i didn't get in trouble for that so That's they were looking yeah yeah they were must have been another company over there sir we got you know we have four companies in our brigade sir just a, re a, real, a real quick question for Jared. Did you get hold of Robert Bauer? I I did. We'll have to talk about that off air. That went very well. Yeah, I knew it would. Yeah. Uh, looking, looking. Uh, we're gonna chat with him after the show. Okay. Um. So that that digression for everyone is also about our little uh, soiree down to Belize. Um, little bit more than two weeks. I know. Um, so yes, we're leaving. We're going to be going to, um, well, we're going to be going and we're going to look at some ruins. We're going to, uh, do some general touring like everyone else. And then we're going to be going to some places that no one's been in a hundred years other than to just, you know, do modern work in. And there is an opportunity for us to be in an area that is probably at the heart of the Mayan empire. And for those that don't know, we've been talking about this for a few weeks and, um, interesting fact on the property is there's a freshwater spring wayne we haven't even talked about this uh there's a basically like a mountain but it's uh, about 90 feet and it's shaped at least topography wise it's shaped kind of like a, a small mountain range along the coast but it might be blocks it and it may just be uh well for sure for the mines it would have been probably the only freshwater source for 10 miles and it's a fresh spring and it comes from the mountains inland and it's so strong that it actually uh, forces a four to five foot wide stream as it starts then it goes downhill and it 
disappears. But um, yeah, there there are a lot of things we're learning about the area. There's a beautiful mahogany farm. You know, we're gonna go trollop around and try to help expand uh, a road, maybe to get more to the interior of this uh, property. And uh, at the same time, this is just one of many expeditions we'll be going on in the future. Jim and I were supposed to go after a couple years of planning. Uh, we were going to go to Peru and then <laughs> actually, I don't know if this is Jim's fault. He's like, I'd go with you. And I'm like, you should come with. And then shortly after yeah, yeah. someone called Peru and said, let's do a coup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. military takes over. Yeah. Yeah. And your Machu Picchu too. So they shut that down a few weeks ago. And so Peru is so unstable that you can't even go visit the sites that they've had as a moneymaker now for eons. So they've really been thrown into the dark ages right now. That's really sad. sad. It is. But speaking of dark ages and stuff, everybody that's watching, um, on the Michigan UFO sightings um, and paranormal encounters YouTube channel, there is a link that I posted into both live chats for tonight on Not Aliens and on our channel over here. Uh, it's a GoFundMe for the expedition. So every little bit helps. Oh, yeah. um, you know, we can, well, Jared can hire a, a machete guy for a day for like 20 bucks, you know, so help help out. Cause they're they're not going to just tour and take pictures, ladies and gentlemen. They are going to work, and so they need all hands on deck for this. So every little bit does help. So yeah, it does. The um, you know, and look for those. There is satellite imaging. There is work that lidar, ground lidar work that would just be wonderful. Uh, Tom Elmore, his group, they did all of America's Stonehenge. They've done over three hundred archaeological sites, and there is a, a benefit to having satellite imaging and you really can establish some um, right down to the GPS, you know, so there, if there's a mound, even if we can get satellite imaging down to the foot and a half uh, and we can use electronic devices to then track ourselves to those GPS coordinates, ground LIDAR is a way to eliminate all the trees and all the underbrush in an area with something that's um, down to the micro millimeter you know just it's it, it's another layer and it would allow us to get to places that we want to look faster but it's not inexpensive to have you know someone down to do that so if anyone does although we have the gofundme up and i'm telling you yeah 25 an hour, um, a day bushman would be amazing and we we need all the help and and little things we can get i mean really but uh if anyone did want to contribute in a larger way, you should contact me um, directly. Feel free to send an email and we will um, address if there was a donation amount that would work for that. Uh, it would be awesome because we would like to do the ground LIDAR work, more extensive satellite imaging. Uh, every Again, every little bit helps. So anything you guys want to contribute, please do it. Go to the GoFundMe. Do you want them to contact you through email then? Yeah. What the, is that address? Uh, so, you know, it's on notaliens.com if you do get there. So notaliens.com, but you can go to notaliens, uh, it's us at Gmail. That's on the website at notaliens under contact. You can contact me from there. All right. There you um, go, people. So, yeah. So you can just uh, do that if you, otherwise GoFundMe is great. Look, every, like, like Wayne said, and 
every little bit is um, so significantly helpful. So the uh, plan was to go at it a bit in a larger scale, but this round we'll get there. Uh, we're going anyway. Uh, and I'm really grateful to people who just said they wanted to take along and, um, you know, just help. And it's really going to be a pretty busy day. It's very hot. We're on the equator. Uh, we're going to be at it seven, eight hours a day on site after traveling anywhere from an hour to two hours uh, to get to where we're going and then to trek around. Uh, it's it, it's either by, you know, it's the method of us getting there can take us up to an hour. And then at that point, we have anywhere from one to three kilometers to hike. So we have a lot to do just to bring water, gear, and things out to an area where we absolutely cannot leave for anywhere from six to nine hours. And then we have a long trip back. So every day that we're out is going to be, you know, fact finding experiments, um, studying and, you know, again, it'll all be things that we want to make available to all of you. And one of the commitments here is to not just create research that we can use, you know, secret and to ourselves, but part of the philosophy of everyone going has always been, how do we create meaningful advancements in our history and our, our knowledge of our past, but also work with people in this case, you know, private landowners and how do we help them get around their property? They need a road. You know, we have to be able to get places on the property and mm -hmm. how do we make them accessible? And, and all of those logistics are important and sharing just where we're going and what we're doing. And that's also something that people can not just listen to, but you can contribute. And that's something, that's the foundation of something that I've been committed to from when I started talking to all of you and doing any of the shows or, you know, when my new book comes out, the reality is that this is about giving everyone an opportunity to contribute. And that, that means it just might be, you know, uh, your personal observations of uh, satellite imaging or data that maybe we looked at a thousand times and just, it just takes a different mind wired a different way to see something that no one else saw. So, and, I mean, it happened on America's Stonehenge. And none of this is a party fund. It's to pay your you know, $12,000 for the LIDAR, which, and, uh, and then there's, you know, there's thousands of dollars for, for the, have the satellite imagery uh, uh, evaluated, you know, to help us, you know, locate where we want to, you know, where, where we want to start. And, and there's, you know, there's other talent out there that we have to pay for. And that's what yeah. the fund is for. I mean, uh, for I, yeah. yeah, go for it. Yeah. So, you know, it is, it is to an incredible cause. And the thing about it, if we, if we strike pay dirt, whatever that may be, I mean, if it's, if, if we find a pyramid that is, you know, you can, we can tell that it's never been pillaged. I mean, that could be, I mean, that could be the cat's meow. I mean, my gosh, uh, that would yeah. be the most incredible thing that we could find. And yeah. because of where it's at, because it's near a, you know, a freshwater spring, and that's where the Mayans had, there may be a center of commerce there. There's that one uh, ridge that uh, Jared was talking about just a few minutes ago. That could be a garbage dump. And where they yeah, threw their trash or their debris. 
and you're going through a thousand year old garbage dump with someone else, you know, didn't say, well, this is nothing. It's just a piece of gold. We have enough of that already. Let's go look at some other stuff. Uh, I mean, it could it could be like Raiders of the Lost Ark or, you know, almost anything from Indiana Jones. So it's I, I am so charged up about it. And I've I've been doing I've been going out snooping on our government forever. I've had little red dots in my chest. This is just a little bit different, more <laughs> extreme area, uh, even though, you know, there's a lot of snakes and scorpions and whatever out in the desert. We're going to have, you know, and I'm, I have my. I found my snake chaps, they're Kevlar. And I uh, said, nothing, no snake is going to be able to bite through it. So that's, uh, and I found my boots that I had lost. So I'm ready, I'm ready for it. Now, physically, um, I'm an old fart, but <laughs> I can keep up, I can keep up with almost everybody and I always have. So I'm looking forward I, to that. I don't doubt it. I mean, um, you're not even the oldest person on the trip. I'm not. <laughs> you're not. Who's going to um, be the oldest? Well, that would be our our one of our benefactors. He's 82. Oh, okay. Well, I'm close. And, <laughs> no, but you get to be younger now. How do you oh, take goodness. that? I don't have to be. I don't have to be the old man. I'm the. Nope. And he'll give you. He'll give you two runs for your money. So you're. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. So you're now. Uh, you're one of the. You're one of us now, Jim. Oh, you're okay. one of the young ones. All right, all right. Hell, now that I think about it, I should put you on the futon. All right. <laughs> hey, I, I've I've slept in some incredible places in my life. Pile of rocks. I mean, I I fell asleep on top of white sides overlooking the area fifty one, and the only thing the only thing that woke me up is it was it got down to about seventeen degrees, and I was just I was just shaking. I couldn't warm up, but. Uh, you know, some of the comments too on that, um, just for everyone listening, one of the things we do want to do is open this up to people who want to go on uh, expeditions in the future. So this is just a, this preliminary is significant in the amount of time that we're spending. Uh, again, we're going to be expanding some paths and roads and uh, we're going to be looking uh, based to compare the field with our imaging and uh, it's very likely we could come up with dozens of interesting things. We're not trying to um, get into anything deep because just to get, it is, I can't even explain. It's just like the movies where it's like romancing the stone when Michael Douglas is cutting grass to cut yeah. through. Uh, it's literally called razor grass. Um, it's sharp. It will cut you up. You cannot wear shorts. Uh, there's small trees. Uh, you're, there's mangrove. This is very difficult. Um, you have to make your way around. And for even our group and all the supporting staff, you know, there's uh, there's something for everyone to do. So just like Jim's saying, though, whether you're 82, 78, or otherwise, the reality, this is not just a young person's game. There's different ways to support. And the reality is that to get to where we want to go in the jungle and match ourselves up with our GPS coordinates, um, getting there and just maybe finding some rocks that are interesting, uh, that that's the goal because we might be digging six feet. And I don't know if, how many people out there have dug an egress window, but you know, we might be just going, okay, well, we want to put a road here. We want to put a path over here because this, this pile is 
uh, something interesting or this pile is something or that mound is something. And so to establish all that and then to create a more efficient system that doesn't take 100 years, a decade or five, this is this expedition. And once laid out, come after the what is essentially the Belizean rainy season slash winter, which is nonstop rain. Uh, it'll be months, but there will be the next expedition. And then Wayne here, who we haven't pressured at all this show, yeah. might want to go. Yeah. Uh, hey, I would love to go. But this this year has been financially a burden for me right now with car issues and bills and things like that. So <clears throat> next year, for sure. We got GoFundMain. We're yeah, go fund, go and, fund. Yeah, and what we're what we're doing in essence is not much different than Lewis and Clark. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, we're we're going into an area. You know, John said that he there's a, about half the property he said he'd never been on. Yeah, and so you know we may be the first you know uh, Caucasians to step foot. Or we may be the first humans to step foot. In a thousand years, it depends on how old the uh, you know the settlement was. Well, just uh, real quick though, guys. Um, Anne Del Rio, uh, she is. I want to say Argent. She does a podcast out of Argentina and Germany, I believe. She is. Uh, she she does a show on YouTube, and she says that she would like to support you guys by giving you guys an interview about it. So. It's a Spanish show, so um, and I guess you should try to email Jared. And yeah, I think it's uh, now I'm terrible, but if I do my I E O U's, I think it's Aina 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 I think Del Rio, but yeah, we should yeah. connect. Um, yes, if you so I think it's here. If you didn't catch it, do my uh email at not aliens it's us at gmail i suppose i should type that out how would i type it out but you you we'd be happy to do an interview with you and um we have some people that could help translate too um Mm -hmm. if it's in spanish because i know i know she mentioned or he meant i i don't know is it did i nail it did i get right yes i heard a yes any any so uh i i think it's aine uh, but I don't know. Uh, uh, the she's got I in here. E, a? And the e is the A. So well, she... Aine. Aine. <laughs> um, I, 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 I am going to. Yeah. Uh, I'll type it in here so that if you guys want to, um, um, if you want to connect with us later, it's um. Here you go. Not, and then the dates. Somebody asked about the dates, so we're going to be going. Uh, the 16th to the 30th and uh, uh, that will be in April here. Did I spell that right? Did I spell my own email right? It's really hard to type and talk. Um, you know what? I, I misspelled my own. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me do it again. Sorry, All folks. Right. Here it is. Not aliens. Did I put enough S's in it? Oh, I thought I was being smart. You know, spell it out. 
right. not aliens, it's us. So there isn't there are all the all three us in it. But anyway, yeah, we will we'll do something. Ha ha. Oh, it's ha. Aina. <laughs> Aina. All right, is that better? Aina. I think I, I'm getting there. So because I don't know if this is like if you said Argentinian, is it I don't know if that's Portuguese or Spanish. Like, what's the primary? This is terrible. My South American uh um <laughs> yeah, you know because Belize really Belize. messed me up for everyone who doesn't know I did not know the the actual I guess declared a language for Belize is English and ironically we have multiple people going down that speak Spanish and then I'm like well well then there's native languages indigenous languages so then it's mm -hmm. like okay well great they're all making an effort to speak English but then you know, there was British expeditionary forces there. So for those that don't know, yeah, we are the only people that be kind of like looking around in a hundred years and definitely in the last 40, but there, there is a, you know, there's British maps, there's oil companies, there are mining companies that do things and have, is that, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, but, there's definitely but, uh, been some people down there. Both Belize and I think uh, Honduras were uh, British territories for centuries. Wow. That's a Celtic goddess. Yeah. So for, you know, in the future, you guys will be invited in. Uh, there is no reason that we can't have a larger force. This one is very, uh, it's not, and it's not that you won't, by the way, uh, some of the people coming in the group, it's, it's really wonderful. They're so ready to work. They're so ready to be busy. I mean, really, it's going to be hot. There isn't, this isn't like, oh, we go kicked rocks for a half hour. This is hard work. That's going to be uh, very physically. If you're looking for a weight loss week, this is yeah. the week. You want to get fit. You want to go to Orange Theory or sweat this out. Tell you what, just don't go to hot yoga. Just come to Belize. You're going to get it <laughs> all. And I don't think that anyone who's coming, there was a concern that they were just going to stand around and like, I don't know, nothing to do for an hour. And then it's like, oh, come hold this for a minute. I don't, I can't wait to see how many people need to take an extra day off. <laughs> or like, people Yo. are going to be sore. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very curious how, uh, how it's actually going to pan out for those that can, uh, uh, cause again, you don't always have to do heavy lifting. It's like, well, carry some gear or someone's got to run the 2K back to the boat and grab fill in the blank and then everybody's got to take the 2k walk back and who's doing that you know it there's a lot to do that doesn't involve just you know dirt mm -hmm. so, hold my crystal skull is right yeah yep. it's exactly it. all your yeah. job yeah you had no. one job you can you have the crystal job you can have the crystal skull i'll get the gold skull the one that, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's full size you know yeah, where did Jim go? <laughs> is that the boat? Oh. Where is he going? Um, there is um, so there is something that um, we should talk about as far as this expedition is the beginning of many others. So it's fun to go to places together in groups, known ruins. That's also a part of it. If you can go see what other people have excavated and then Unfortunately, all of these sites are fractionally excavated. You know, they say three to 5%. I would argue that it's in the point percent, you know, not just based on the Guatemalan LIDAR scans of 60,000 buildings, but I think we've grossly underestimated 
the number of ruins and the number of populations that were living all through Central and South America. The, you know, the father, okay, one more digression before I get back on track. The father of South American archaeology was a archaeologist from Hamburg, Germany. And he had a lecture that I quote in my book that he's talking about like, look, um, there were civilizations here that we think may have come from here. And then fast forward to the Guatemalan LIDAR scans, you have one of the local archaeologists saying, you know, we have to stop looking at South America. You know, academically, they said uh, South America is where cultures went to die. And his point after oh, the 60,000 building discovery was that we need to look at this as an origin, possibly, of of cultures and things that may have exported that's never been looked at that way. And I think Central and South America wasn't just this isolated, backward, primitive. I think it I think it may show societies and cultures that maybe rivaled Sumeria and 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 exported. And I think our genetic I think the genetic evidence for that is going to be fascinating over time. Well, I know they've found large amounts of Asian DNA in indigenous people in Central and South America, quite a bit. So, which kind of are everywhere. Yeah, leads to the Chinese were probably sailing the coast at one point and stopping along the way. So. Yeah, there. That we know the Chinese, the linguistics, the towns. Uh, again, the father of South American archaeology. He's literally giving a lecture in 1910, 1914. They're talking about the Chinese were in Central and South America you, long before the Europeans. We have the Bay of Amphora Jars in Brazil, which isn't just like one ship got, you know, they try to say that, oh, maybe there was a, maybe a Roman vessel. No, it's literally called the Bay of Amphora Jars. It's filled with what is clearly a trade route for the Roman Empire. You have to explain tobacco and cocaine in Egypt. You have to explain why Terra Preta, that engineered soil, is not only all over North America or North Africa, it's over South Africa, it's in other places around the world. We have clear pre-dynastic, that's pre-dynastic even. We have, we have engineered growing and, you know, atmosphere filtering soils on every continent and particularly from Brazil and Central American Belizean Terra Preta. We're talking about a man-made soil that's in Africa, North and South and who brought it there. And what about the trade routes and the chemistries and the tobacco? There's just no going around it that our history is not what we know it is. And it, it's that we just have to, it's exciting. I think it, it helps us define or recall in our collective consciousness and our own genetic memories. It helps us get better and better hunches about who we are. There's a million reasons why this is important and continuing with this ridiculous land bridge narrative that that's the only way people came to North and Central and South America to continue with this idea that all modern society, that the cradle, the fertile crescent, that this is where it all origins. I just, I just, this is just, I digress. I was not trying to go all the way there, but we well, it's were. very possible that that fertile crescent was and probably an outpost of survivors from a, a very cataclysmic time and just yeah. one of probably many, which may go all the way to Central and South America. Um, you know, there's there's so much to be discovered about this. It's uh, yeah, it's quite I, amazing. 
yeah, I, I, it's really kind of dumbfounding as far as what we're going to be able to go do that we're going to invite and that we can open this up and really look to us as we go and we'll send you guys some updates as we're there o- over that period of the second half of April. When we get back, things you all listening can start getting in your heads is just food for thought. You could easily you know, be included on another expedition. There is a possibility that that is um, something you could all start planning on. That If we do start planning a second one, it would be for this kind of, uh, you know, furthering this research and this knowledge is what we're going to continue to do. It doesn't matter if it's this property or another. I, I hope we have multiple seasons here. I hope we find something significant and I hope that the owners are happy and, and we're able to uh, continue to work that in for everyone. But that is a possibility. This isn't just a, you guys watch. This could be, you guys participate. Hey, Jared, just one thing I was thinking of, uh, just throwing it out there, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but I want to say it before I forget. Um, You know, we got the GoFundMe going for this expedition. I'm wondering if we should maybe think about for the next one, doing more of a Kickstarter type of a thing where we actually have different levels of reward for people that you know, uh, do donate. Like if they donate $20, I get a t-shirt that says expedition Belize or, you know, things like that, you know, some little extra incentive in there for, for, uh, people to donate and get something out of it, even if they can't go. Yeah. I think we paid, we paid for someone to go to Belize and all I got was this lousy (laughs) t-shirt. There you go. There you go. Right. Jim Goodall did not get bit by a snake again this year. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but I've been I'm modifying three, this. I've been married four times. So, well, okay. Oh, <laughs> you've been Jim, bit in other ways. Yes. Jim, you can thank yourself for this idea. And Wayne, you were the catalyst. Here's how we do this. The next one, I think, well, one, for those of you listening, you have to understand that when we find things, it's going to change the level of, um, interest by a lot of different parties for sure and you know if they see that there's something there however i think a kickstarter where at different levels you get to choose what we wear any given day (laughs) (laughs) nobody this isn't real survivor man (laughs) right like we're not going into the jungle naked that's not how that's working no but but like you know who gets the purple or the tie-dyed snake chaps who gets you know, you know, who gets the pink hammer, you know, those kind of things. <laughs> who gets to wear um, the, the butt flap uh, loincloth with Jim's picture on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that'll scare away the snakes. There you go. Like, yeah. like I said, we should do like the Belizean uh, action figure playset with uh, <laughs> battle damage and assorted other uh, accessory kits. Bulldozer sold separately. Um, there are some options we can do because, there, there will be some interest. Uh, again, we are, we're filming for this also. Yeah. So yeah. Butt flaps for the win. Yes. Sir. All right. Hypothetically outside of talking about going to this uh, <laughs> expedition, which again includes imaging, which we will be sharing with you. Uh, the filming we're doing for this will end up in something really exciting, a larger documentary project. Uh, and uh, you'll have seven months to plan Wayne. All right. Now we got to figure out who else is going to come. Just saying. 
I mean, yeah. I, you know, it, and it could be like uh, when they announced the storm area 51, 5 million people said they were coming. Terrible and, idea. Yeah, yeah. And, and in Lincoln, Esmeralda, and Nye County in central Nevada, there's less than 200 hotel motel rooms. <laughs> yeah. And there's only seven, I think there's 700,000, maybe it's a million now uh, in the state of Nevada. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a highly populated state. Um, no. How, how are they? I think more people honestly could have actually died of dehydration. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Never, Just, yeah. It never would have worked. Somebody said, well, how are they going to stop 2 million people storming the gate? Shoot the guy up front. <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah. They Just don't one. have to. The environment will take care of that. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Honestly, yeah, in a few hours with not enough water, I don't know how a million, two million, three, five million people in the desert, what they're going to stand in line for water. It would be terrible. No. No. And you're no. not even you're not even accounting for people that might have some type of a medical issue where they need medication. You know, during oh, the day, diabetes. blood pressure, whatever. Oh, you no. know, yeah. When it, when it finally was over, you know, over and done with, there were more there were more security people in the area than there were participants because <laughs> the word came down from the Pentagon. This is from a buddy of mine who's he said, anybody at Nellis that has an eagle or a star in their shoulder, are drinking buddies of mine. So he's way up in the food chain. He said he had heard. Uh, pretty much, he said from the horse's mouth that the word came down from the Pentagon that absolutely nobody will be allowed to penetrate the perimeter area fifty-one. Yeah, that's a they, terrible idea. They they brought in all their non-lethal uh, crowd control, the microwave, and then the one that's the real killer is the brown sound, extremely low frequency, high intensity, and it hits you. And your bowels empty out, boom! <laughs> yeah. And your level of enthusiasm is significantly reduced <laughs> if you have a pants full of poop. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I'm thirsty and I made a messy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, I, we really hit highbrow this time. Thanks for everyone look, for watching. And <laughs> we stormed Area right? 51, and all we got were these dirty diapers. Yeah. Yep. I. <laughs> I, I Wayne, what's going on on Michigan UFO sightings right now? Uh, right now, we've taken a little break for spring break, but uh, coming on April 8th on our live show on Saturday, April 8th at 8 p.m., we're going to be having Gemma Jade come on. And then uh, we're going to talk her new book, 101, uh, what is it, New Creepy Story, True Creepy Stories or something. It's going to be really cool. Oh, that cool. sounds fun. Yeah, and then as of right now, on the 29th, I've got Ray Szymanski coming back on to talk about more information about uh, the Michigan 1966 UFO flap and what's kind of breaking with that information. So, um, And apparently I was going to be doing a interview for Contact in the Desert and interviewing Dr. Avi Loeb, but he unfortunately cannot... Uh, they reached out to him through their, you know, he's a speaker at Contact in the Desert, and he said he was not going to be available for that. So uh, we're waiting to see if we get somebody else. I would really like uh, Paul Hynek. Okay. So, 
So see if we can get somebody else, but I would like at least one more person to fill in the middle of April for us uh, for an interview. So don't you have a, don't you have an event to go to soon? That's in June. Yes. Oh, June. Right. Yeah. The cosmic summit with uh, okay. Randall Carlson, Graham Hancock, and yeah. a lot of other people. There you so. go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to step in it this time. So. <laughs> um, hey, wait till so, next time. Yeah. Next I can't time. thank you enough for all the time in the Chucker Playhouse. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, what, um, uh, that schedule on spring break has you running up and running again. When what's that uh, date? April 8th, April 8th. Yeah. All right. So then, um, uh, Jim, how is the new release of your book coming along? Well, I mean, my publishers just give me a, you know, just heartburn right now. He said, well, some of the stuff you have in here has been, been, uh, in other documents. I said, well, it's all coming from government information, from US Navy information. So, well, we, we can't have that. Well, I said, we're dealing with something that happened half a century ago. The people involved are dead. <laughs> and the only thing available are official histories and stuff written, you know, for the Navy. And that's where I'm getting, you know, most of my information. So I said, if you don't, if you don't, and then this is, these are just, you know, uh, sub statements, if you want to call it that, within or informational statements within you know certain categories of submarines. Uh, you know, it's an ex an explanation. I'm not, you know I'm doing a pictorial history, but I'm also doing a uh, you're talking about a lot of the things that happened. You know, in in just a box. You know, such and such. You know, uh, was at the North Pole. Uh, with uh, with you know four other uh, submarines, two of them were British. When one of them was uh, whatever, so it's uh, I'm just I, I I told him I said I, I said uh, chew on it. Tell me what you want to do because but I I've submitted everything I'm going to submit, and if you don't like it, then if you don't like what I what I put down, what I've written down. Uh, Erase all of the, all the, that stuff. I still have the meat of it, but the Brit, the British, the Brits are kind of they're they're a strange lot. You know, they have yeah. you know they have very archaic rules and regulations as it pertains to uh, copyright and trademark and and whatever. And so we can't we can't use all this artwork for the insignias for each of the submarines. I said they've all been approved. And they're, you know, they're part of Navy heraldry. I mean, they're they're part of the history of the submarine. Oh, well, since we, you know, since we don't, we can't identify who the artist was. I said it doesn't make any difference. It was funded by and for the United States government, yeah. which makes it public domain. Well, not according to our rules, our you know, our laws. Well, that's why you're publishing in America anyway. So. Uh, you know, someone made a reference. Well, actually, so we were making a reference about finding. Uh, oh, that's you. No, it moved on me. So <laughs> finding ancient tools and technology. I wanted to point out that Jim's book, you know, a few weeks ago, I think Wayne and I were talking to him and and we were like, well, what's the weirdest thing anybody saw in a sub? And uh, your answer again, Jim, was uh, what was that anomaly they found? 
It, it went by. It went by him by a submerged summer in the USS Hampton, SSN seven sixty seven. I think seven sixty seven. It went by him at over seven hundred miles an hour under the water. They don't know what it was. So they're at they it were at three hundred feet. Huh? No, they were at seven hundred feet. Yeah, they were about seven hundred feet deep in the ocean when something went by them underwater, right, and it went right by the sub at over seven hundred miles an hour. So, for those that want to know if it's uh, something from now or something from the, you know, something from our ancient past that still lives amongst us, yeah, that's some of the some of the questions that we got to answer. Yeah. Yeah. So what, um, Jim, did they ever say that it could have been just a, there's nothing that we know of underwater that goes that fast, right? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Oh, no, there isn't. From, uh, Burton from Lost in the Dark, he wants to know, uh, do they have a, a size estimate as to, you know, how big that object was? No, no. Um, and ap apparently the, the Navy, doesn't want to talk about it. Really? Yeah. I mean, and that's that's just our Navy. It's it's the burn before reading people. Um, and it, as a military historian, that, and that stuff just really uh, disappoints me, because how much stuff has been delegated to the the circular file, because somebody was too lazy or there didn't have enough. Uh, wherewithal to put it somewhere where it can be retrieved or you know, or accessed somehow. And so, you know, those, those are just the things we have to, you know, we have to live through doing what I do. And I've been, I've been doing this 50 years. I mean, I was, uh, I was more or less, uh, 1970, I had a, a, a buddy of mine get hold of me and said, you know, anytime anyone's talking about a blackbird, anybody asked me, you work at the Smithsonian. And I said, I sent him your way. He said, why don't you write a book? He said, I hate writing. And, uh, and it, you know, it turns out, you know, that's what I ended up doing. My, my first book was actually on the 117. The F-117, the first stealth fighter, but I, you know, I became uh, pretty much a an expert on on the Blackbird, which I saw on my just before I turned 19 years old. It was March 10th, 1964, and I've never been the same. I it's it's affected me like nothing else I've ever ex experienced in my life. So for for from the for, whether it's from the SR-71 down to what you've been writing about on subs right now, Jim, what is the military and Lockheed Martin, you name it. And this goes to you too, Wayne. I, I, I brought this question up about could the craft have been, uh, but that deep in the ocean, I would not rule out unknown underwater animals or cryptids. I'm guessing that nuclear sub had the capability to distinguish between an accidental little tiny moth flying across the radar. They knew it was a 700 mile an hour object, right? This, whatever it was, was huge. They were deep. They were 700 feet, I believe is what uh, he said. And it went flying by them and it, and it, and it I, they felt it in the sub, you know, just a little bit, but not like you would think. 
and you you don't go. I mean, to have a torpedo that's going to do fifty or sixty knots submerged, that's pretty good. You know, to have because yeah. you're you're dealing you're going against a, a medium water that does not compress. I mean, to compress water, it takes over seven hundred and fifty thousand uh, pounds per square inch to compress water. That's why, and when water freezes, it expands. That's why water and freezing cycles bring down mountain ranges. Water gets in there, you get a hard freeze, it cracks, and then more water comes in. Next winter, it cracks a little bit more. Next thing you know, uh, you have a you have an avalanche or well, you have a rubble versus a mountain. Jim, you probably know this from living in Minnesota, and um, same with you, Jared. We have yeah. here in Michigan, we have salt wedging, which is where they'll put salt on the roads, <laughs> right? And it melts the snow and the ice off the roads. However, then the salt goes into solution and that solution then finds its way into cracks in your concrete and any, any little opening that it can get into. And then the water eventually evaporates, dropping the salt. The salt will partic uh, precipitate out of that solution and it will start to wedge, literally wedge the crack and make it larger and larger and larger. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to Burton's point um, about the craft being that deep, for me, I, I would rule out animals or cryptids. Um, to me, that sounds like high technology because like Jim was saying, I mean, fluid dynamics happen in the atmosphere and underwater. It doesn't matter yeah. if it's air, it's it's you know, it, it's, it's basically hydrodynamics. And when you're moving that fast, you have to be able to move the water in front of you. Yep. And, uh, to not hinder the, a speed at 700 miles an hour. Yeah. That's I mean, incredible. And, yeah. And then talking about, you know, not only that, but the water pressure that's being exerted all over your craft at one time at 700 feet down. I mean, that's you're, a lot you're, of PSI. Yeah. And, and, so, and the other, and the other thing, you have to, it has to do something, something, whatever the object was, to you know, create a, a bubble around itself, to, you know, more or less clear the water in front of you. And, and, and it may use lasers, it may use who knows what, but you want to, you want to be able to, you know, and uh, not sure is correct, you know, four and a half times faster. So it's, you know, it's the, the sonar operator said, my God, it's going supersonic. It's going set over 700 miles an hour. Everybody knows about 700 miles an hour is, is the speed of sound, mm -hmm. but not in water. It's much, much faster in water. Yeah. But but water does not compress. So, so you know, the Russians, right. the Russians have been touting the fact that they have a torpedo that'll do 200 or 500 miles an hour. Okay, that's one thing, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not five or six, you know, hundred miles an hour, then go like a hundred or 200 miles an hour is what they've claimed, but no one's seen an example of it. So it's, well, uh, it, it kind of goes to my theory about how these craft and, and, and 
you know, my, myself and my, I have a very smart chemistry teacher that teaches in the room next to me. And we have these conversations about this stuff because uh, he's from the upper peninsula. So, you know, uh -huh. he's, he's oh, a backwoods yeah. guy. Right. Oh, and, yeah. uh, but he's very, very smart. And we were talking one day and we, you know, what, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how, how could you counteract gravity? And basically what we came up with is that you would have to have a material that you could basically drop the absolute temperature of that material down to absolute zero. So it has no mass at that point. Gravity would not affect it. That's kind now, of our it, work. It, it, our it wouldn't work have, theory. it wouldn't have any molecular movement, but it would still have mass though. Wouldn't it? Uh, no, no, the mass would be zero because it, it it's a measurement well this anyways this is what we were toying around with like last year uh -huh. and now i'm thinking the the 700 foot deep thing if if this craft or whatever could either increase its its temperature or decrease it so that it didn't the medium wouldn't have any effect on it and i know there have been reports of these things being trans medium so going from air uh, through the ground, even and through the water. So, yeah. I mean, well, it, I think I think you're right, Wayne. There's no way that the uh, the propulsion system that's taking something off an F-22 fighter pilot weapon screen at Mach 22 at zero point turns that technology, that magnetic, electromagnetic, whatever that, whatever those, whatever they understand of field dynamics, it would be zero different if it was water. I think whatever's surrounding those machines and their abilities to move, waters, air doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're they're moving in ways that we are not comprehending the Yeah. We have such a primitive understanding with my Well I think I heard uh was it Eric Weinstein on Joe Rogan talking about this, how we are locked into Newtonian physics and also we're locked into einsteinian type of thought process of general relativity Boo. but why yeah why are we limiting we are limiting ourselves and i think uh, uh people now in sciences the ones that like uh, uh dr weinstein was talking about um the ones you can't find let's say you know a brilliant uh physicist out there and all of a sudden they disappear or they're working in some uh, uh, college somewhere. That's probably where you're going to find these people that are actually working on this stuff. And uh, yeah, it, it's just, we are limiting ourselves. However, do we want to play around with that technology being as ignorant as we are right now? And who knows, at least with like the atomic bomb, we, we were detonating them. We could see the, but, destructive device but okay so now we we set into a, a uh we set a neutron or a neutrino off and blow up half the planet you know it's like yeah it's like yeah we, we mean, got a lot of learning to do yeah but one, one of the concerns before they detonated the first nuclear weapon at trinity will this ignite the oxygen the in the air atmosphere yeah and they didn't know but they said you know what we're just we're just going to do it. <laughs> I There's mean, something wrong with letting them just do whatever. Yeah. It's just, it drives me nuts. I uh, Even when I was young, uh, for those that don't know, my grandfather was a tank commander. 
He landed at D-Day, was in the Battle of the Bulge, was in a tank to Berlin. I was fascinated by that history. And you, know, you get into the, and I and every level, it wasn't just battle or armor or tech. It was the politics. It was the sciences around the time. It was why yep. did Oppenheimer end up coming to America? Where was Einstein? Where was Bohr? Where were all the greats in the 20s and 30s that were alive in the 40s? And it was all fascinating to me that we start putting out satellites like Voyager and Star Trek, like we brought up earlier that Star Trek, oh, that was the conversation we were having earlier is like that possibly the past uh, was more like uh, Star Wars and the future is more like Star Trek. That came up in my dialogue before the show, Jim. Cool. And I find it fascinating that we put a disc with our basic DNA code, our home yeah. address. <laughs> and as you pointed out, there's a zillion exoplanets where exo Hitler for yeah. non-benevolent reasons we should not give our home address unless we're capable of defending well, ourselves. Well, we're we're from, sending out so many electronic uh, signals out there. Someone's bound to pick it up. I, and, and there's there's probably some you know some little green guy uh, up on a mountaintop. All of a sudden, you're getting really excited. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! The wow signal I, for yeah, them. I, ju I just got a commercial for Cotex Pan. You know. You know it just uh, real quick, I want to address what Douglas Boone says here. Resistance in all directions. Remove resistance in one direction and fall through that space as a question. And that's kind of what my theory was when I was working with my chemistry teacher. We were talking about this. I mean, if you think about if you can remove the idea, if it's even true, I mean, there's people out there that that don't see gravity as a force. It, it, it's really interesting thoughts out there. But if you could remove the mass of the object, if you make it absolute zero, no molecular movement, but think about you're sitting here on the planet and let's say all you got to do is hover your craft and you zero out everything about your craft and gravity no longer affects you, inertia no longer affects you, Planet Earth just zipped away from you at 67,000 miles an hour because that's how fast we're going around the sun. So mm -hmm. if you could cancel out that inertial movement, but you could control it, yeah, it could look like you're here one second and bzz, you're over here and you're really not moving. The Earth is moving underneath you. It's also rotating at 1,000 miles per hour. So if you start thinking more like that, like using the, the movement of planets and stars and things to your advantage, then you, you just have to counteract that inertia and that, that gravitational force, or whatever that is. We still don't know why there's gravity, but we know how to calculate what happens. We got some good math for it, but we don't know why two objects create, why their mass creates a gravitational pull. And, you know, we're, I mean, we're zipping on a rock. We're, we're little fleas on a rock hurtling through space at 67,000 miles per hour, spinning at a thousand miles per hour if you're standing at the equator. And, and we're just these little things on this rock and we're still here. I mean, that, that's just. We you didn't know, get thrown off by the, yeah. by the rotation. Or, or we haven't run into anything really big yet again. You know, yeah. it, it's in it, in space isn't as empty as is you know we oh. used to think it is. It's not. But but 
when when I was at Kitt Peak, we we when I first got up there, we we're having a discussion on asteroids, and and the uh, astronomer says, you know, everybody's concerned about. You see the movies, you're going through the asteroid belt and you're trying to go around them. It says the average distance between objects in the asteroid belt is 680,000 miles. <laughs> so if you run into something going through the asteroid belt, either you have a really, really bad navigator or you're really, really unlucky because the chances of hitting something are pretty slim. But well, not zero. Wayne, you just made the exact point that I've tried to explain to people when they're in the middle of some of these, uh, why can't we go back in time? I was like, well, you just open up a wormhole or whatever. There, There is this theory of uh, this eerie effect on in the quantum theories and the quantum world of, you know, you, you observe something that at a point that somewhere at the opposite end of the galaxy or universe, you have two somehow corresponding reactions on the quantum level of a single particle uh, or maybe we call it a wave or something in the ether. Uh, but I've tried to explain to people, so you want to go back in time. You want to get in your DeLorean and get, hit your 88 miles an hour and go back in time. <laughs> 88, that's a good number. So you, I, I, I think it's, you know, I never thought about it, but I wonder if it's just because they, they both look like infinity symbols. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but in all seriousness, so you want to go back in time and say it's even five minutes the planet is going as fast as you said the solar system is moving the galaxy is moving the universe is moving and proportionally we think it's all relative but if you took yourself out of that entire equation yes. and said well i only pause myself for five minutes and you think when you're done in that five minutes you're going to be able to see the solar system the galaxy, like where would you really be? Even if you paused yourself for five minutes, would you even have a reckoning of star systems? No. You know what I mean? No. And I've tried to explain it to people, you know, in a yeah. finite box, and I've tried to show them if all of it's spinning, yeah. then you're, you know, you're, you know, like where did everything, where did everything go? You're going to get out of Pluto right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You'd, be, you'd be lucky if you could still see our solar system in five minutes yeah. and, 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 and have a reckoning where you'd have a trajectory for a course. So when people are like, oh, yeah, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll eventually go faster than the speed of sound and then we'll go back in time. Yeah, maybe you will go back in time, but when, Nothing you, will be there. <laughs> when you arrive, what direction are you going back in time? What direction are you reversing the entire galactic universal rotation that if you go back in time a hundred years if anything is that what you know what i mean isn't that terrifying yeah, yeah. And of well, course that takes all the fun out of movies but going yeah, back yeah, in yeah. time you want to go ahead go on okay i'll go on yeah one one of the things i uh you know when i was you know, talking with uh, my multiple conversation with ben rich is if we could leave the solar system, leave you know our galaxy at the speed of light or faster, uh, you know you're gonna you're there's gonna be no time interval. This is this is the way Bob Lazar's uh, sports model went. You went from one point you can go 14 billion light years and there's no, there's no there's no change in your timeline. You, you know it, it's it's happened right now. But my question is, okay, 
now you're 14 billion light years away. You're going to turn around and come back. Are we going to be there when you get back, when you want to come back? That's or the... if if you're able to navigate to where good old Mother Earth is and where you lived in, you know, in, in northeast Minneapolis on, uh, you know, wherever, uh, you know, have you aged? You haven't aged at all, but maybe everybody around you have, you know, this is a, maybe it's a thousand years. Maybe it's a million years when you come back. You're going to come back uh, to a you know to a world that they don't know who you are. They you know in a, some classified program we sent you off to the hinterlands with you know with a half a dozen other people. Now you're coming back, and you're coming back to a place that doesn't support what you are and who you are. Jim, uh, have you read the Forever War? No. Um, so I got on a kick, everyone. I've I've read the entire 17 Asimov book or 19, you know, from iRobot to uh, Foundation and Earth. It's actually one series uh -huh. and it's a great series, right? And I decided I'm going to read some sci-fi. And from old sci-fi readers to young teen ones, I got a list of like, what are the top 10 greatest sci-fi novels of all time? And they, everyone put Ender's Game in its own category. And, and, and uh, you know, Hyperion is, of course, separated. But they put in Old Man's War, which uh, the original three-book series by John Scalzi. But they brought up a book, and it is listed as one of the greatest sci-fi novels of all time, written by a Vietnam grunt. You military guys are going to like this. This guy, no sci-fi experience at all or anything, writes a novel called the forever war exactly premised on what Jim is talking about. And I'm not ruining it for anyone, but for all of you out there who ultimately, I'm going to say it's a love story and ultimately, Oh, it's violent, but it's a love story. It's a standalone. It has a, like a empire strikes back sort of feel, uh, but it's uh, you join the military and you're sent off to fight, but where you're sent off to fight Jim is exactly that situation. Your platoon you, you might have $2 in the bank, but when you get back, it could be 10 years. It could be two years. It could be 300 years. You know, everyone, you know, could be dead, but you're serving your military to deal with uh, intergalactic issues, but it's a standalone book. It's in, it's considered one of the great sci-fi novels of all time. It's called the forever war. And everything Jim said is basically what this guy from the Vietnam war thought of. And it's just, it's just a brilliant, uh, dark, and also interesting and exciting. And and for all of those out there, there is a love story in it. And it's one hell of a read. But well, yeah, I mean, but it goes to Jim's point is, is that everything, the standard, uh, what I want to say, the standard status of, of objects in the universe is that everything is moving. So that's one thing I always liked about the Star Trek universe and how they dealt with these issues mm -hmm. was that they used a folding of space mechanic, right? <clears throat> that, that their, their warp engines could warp space and time. And then they punch a hole through it. So they, they take a, you know, take a piece of paper, fold it, punch a hole in it where your ship is right here. And then push through it and come out the other side and unfold the space. 
This so, is also a sex education class for everyone listening. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if, if, you, if you think about it like that, you know, uh, that's how they get around the, the whole idea. And then they have fancy computers that are monitoring the positions of of every planet and star in the galaxy so they don't run into anything and yeah come out where and yeah. go back to where they need to go but uh yeah a guy wants to know does jared have a background in science i mean like university stuff i mean like says, yeah it sounds like <laughs> theoretical physics yeah <laughs> um you know one of the best people to listen to on this i i have had an interest guy in a lot of different things and, uh, you know, this, I don't want to out myself always as a geek, uh, but, you know, I was playing the violin seriously um, with a very serious instructor uh, with a professional symphony. I was playing music from the time I was in fifth grade on, but I was studying uh, in search of Schrodinger's cat, Schrodinger's cat. I was reading. And again, my love of history and my love of science and my love of learning started with a grandfather who is literally Brad Pitt and Fury. Um so my interest uh, started with my grandfather being in World War II, but it expanded from that to Civil War, Revolutionary War, you know, back to Roman. And then it was like, okay, well, what are these Sumerian things and Egyptians? And then I ignored the megalithic for years. So there's the irony, right? But my interest in these practices, I met Wim Hof the first time he came to America. I was in the group that learned how to do the superhuman, you know, um, breathing and uh the the controlling your uh, inflammatory response or your heating and cooling you know nice i've math. been a researcher self-experimenter my whole life i didn't think it was a thing i just think i think like a lot of you listening uh and participating we're renaissance people it's hard how would you label da vinci how would you label michelangelo you know you can identify some of their artwork but i think when you have an interest in this world and your genetics, your, your, you know, your own genetic memories, your own passions and interests. The reality is that there's nothing to ordain that you have a right to research it or look into it or, or be something. There are people who do very well in controlled environments, but then you have dropouts like Bill Gates and well, Elon Musk and Michael Dell and well, <laughs> I don't know, the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and well, you pick. But the reality is that I think there's very valuable things you can learn in an academic setting. Um, I'm very self-taught and I have had my share of college, but that was probably longer than anyone needed. And, uh, well, and I know, I know guy. And I think, and being, you know, in academia myself, I can honestly say that, that what Jared is saying and people like me who've been to college and taken the science courses and stuff, Jared would probably have an upper hand in understanding science better than I would actually. And I think I would agree with this because the, uh, the university really puts you in a, a framework of this is how you should think about things. Now they talk about critical thinking and all of this stuff. However, what you end up with is <laughs> what you end up with is being stuck in kind of a mode of thought of, you know, this is the timeline. This is when civilization started. This is this, this is that. And I really broke myself of it when I would ask my professors, my earth science and paleontology 
professors like, how could all these species, all 190 species of animals over, you know, a hundred pounds go extinct and say that humans who were not very many during the end of the, just the younger Dryas, let alone what happened back during Mount Tubo or Toba. Um, how, how could, how could humans have wiped out species, whole species and eat everything? It makes no sense. And their, their answer always was, well, there's three things, ill, chill, or kill. They either all got sick or a combination of, you know, the three, they got sick. So ill, chill, it got really cold and they couldn't adapt and survive and kill humans killed them to, to survive. And, you know, I just, I can't, I could never put my mind around that. And it was like, that was a cop out, you know? Mm. And, uh, and I think that's the problem we have with universities and where I think like people that don't go to university for this kind of stuff that we're looking into get the upper hand because they're not limited by that framework that's already put in place. So they, they don't allow free thought. Yeah. I mean, I, when I was in Hawaii, when I was at Pacific Aviation Museum, I was your associate curator and my boss wanted me to, I want you to go University of uh, Hawaii I want you to get a, you know, go you know, finish your degree in history or museum studies. And I said, Ken, I said, I've I've gone head to head with PhDs and they can't hold the light to me because everything that they're learning, book learning, I've done it in real life. Uh-huh. And I went uh-huh. in, I, I went into audit a class I knew I had to take. And after 15 minutes, I got up and walked out. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, uh, put myself in a position to be abused intellectually by some, you know, some professor or some teacher's aide or whatever it is that's trying to shove this information down my throat because it's wrong. I mean, it's, and that's where I've always gotten in trouble. I, I have never thought outside the, you know, inside the box. I've always drawn outside the lines. I've always stepped over the line. I've, uh, there's a box over here where you're going to find me over here. I just, and it's got me in a lot of trouble. I, I know I've, I've upset and pissed off my share of people. And it's probably in the hundreds of thousands, but it's well, who it, I, it's, it's who I am. I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing to push the envelope. I'm not, I'm not constrained by, the thoughts of the professors. Well, this is the only way it could happen. Baloney. I mean, if it's if it's made by man or thought about by man, someone else can come up with a better idea, or something else out there is better than what, what you're trying to shove down our throat. I think there are certainly, you know, when we look at the history of education in general. I mean, boy, talking about a digression or a whole series we could do. I don't think that the. Uh, <laughs> I mean, at once upon a time, nobody knew anything, basic reading, writing, arithmetic, and creating a system to educate an otherwise uh, still virgin sacrificing, bloodletting, you know, really backward society. I think the concept, the nobility, the, the, the intellectual nobility of what education was supposed to be, I think it's a, a good thing. However, the actualization of the type, maybe it's just a personality type that was drawn to it as uh, the franchising that it's become, there's a lot of inherent uh, 
problems with it. It doesn't mean individually you can't learn in that environment or come away with something. Um, but I think, uh, and again, there I've met great scientists. I've met great people that I think we all have that have, they're, but they're so specialized in the one thing they do, which is good because you should stick within your bandwidth or your wheelhouse and they learn the one thing and they master the one thing. But then the argument's always, well, you need a variety of educations. Well, that's life. But um, one could always argue that you over-specialize or over, uh, but there are plenty of people I think out there that could in, in their specialty be way better than all of us individually, but irrelevant to their education in a college or, or a tech environment or any kind. I think if you don't have an individual passion for it, I think both, Jim, you and Wayne can speak to the fact that yeah. if you don't have a passion for it, you're not going to be good at when, it. When I was interviewing for my job as the associate curator at the Pacific Aviation Museum, I was going against two PhDs that lived on, on Oahu, two guys with masters and another guy that uh, was you know, very, very close to the community. And I got the job. Uh, because I have done it. I, you were talking about over-specialization. Part of my interview process, I went to the American Historical Association annual conference. It was in San Diego in 2009. 2000, 2000, yeah, 2009. There was a gentleman, there was 1,500 PhDs and me. And there's this one guy, his PhD, his area of expertise, he spent his entire life is Macaw, China, 1916 to 1918. That's his entire world. He, prob he probably need, you know, has to need a written permission and a map to go to the bathroom. I mean, that, and, and because I'm very, very hard of hearing, I sit, when I'm at a conference, I sit in front of the speaker. I sit in front of the, uh, the podium. And I was a good looking uh, professor from uh, Tulsa. And then she finally talked about how do you how do you get published if you know if you can somehow get your your monograph published and maybe sell five hundred of them how incredible would that be I'm thinking to myself I'd quit writing if that was it I mean the books that I that you can see behind me there's there's twenty nine of them out there and total number sold right around half a million. You don't make any money on it. I mean, you make pennies on 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 the, uh, yeah. the book, but you know, finally she said, "How many of you? How many uh, of you?" There was about 150 people in in the uh, session. How many of you are published? And I raised my hand, and I look around. There's only one or, one or two other hands, and she points to me. And I stood up and said, "Well, where where are you a professor?" I said, "I'm not. I don't have a PhD." Oh, I don't have a master's degree. I got about you know three years of uh, University of Minnesota straight A's, but um, says I at the time says I, I just finished my nineteenth. Oh, it was my twenty second book, and I've sold over four hundred thousand copies of my books, titles with my name on it. And, and all of a sudden, every, everybody the hands that were up came down, and she looks around, and nobody's nobody's you know, raising their hand. And he says, you know, session dismissed. I mean, I mean, a lot of your PhD candidates and those that are, you know, have a PhD, they're in their own little world. And 
Yeah, yeah, and you know what the problem with that is, though, and this is this is the real big problem. Not only are you in your own little world, you never grow anymore. That's right. right. You know, because you stay in that bubble because it's so comfortable, and that's where I like to get into the into the thick of things and and mess with things. Because okay, so I'm pretty good at earth science. I know what I'm good at. What am I not good at? That's what I need to worry about and Mm -hmm. start working on. You know, and and you're right, Jim. The the PhDs who are, yeah, I, I'm I'm specialized in in molecular biology of a flea's anatomy. Okay, yeah, that's great. Yeah. What else can you do? Well, nothing. No, uh, <laughs> he can't. He's he can't even take out the garbage. Right, change channels. He has right. his kid or his wife to do it, or well, well it's probably his mom because he's still in yeah, his yeah, basement. Yeah, still in his ba- still in his uh, basement. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I I love this one comment here from Not Sure. He says he says Jim looks like Ray Bradbury on Weight Watchers, and Wayne looks like Ming the Merciless with trimmed eyebrows. <laughs> hey, I you know you talk, talk about Weight Watchers. Uh, I was 170 pounds heavier than I was in 2000 today than I was in 2005. And, uh, yeah, and I was, I was also uh, on Weight Watchers when I went to you know, quit smoking. I knew I was going to gain weight. So I lost a lot of weight first and then it pigged out, lost every, gained everything back I had lost over on Weight Watchers. But, but uh, I'm down 170 pounds and it's not coming back. That's yeah, you, you know, yeah. just real quick, Jim, too. One of the things I wanted to point out when you were uh, talking there is that, you know, some of the greatest contributions to science were accidents. Oh, absolutely. Teflon you know, is one of them. Yeah. Uh, post-its, I mean, is, post-its is another. You know, you know the Xerox process, it was developed by Chester Carlson. He was a copyright attorney. And he gave everything to Columbia University. He didn't want it. And Joe Wilson, you know, I think bought it for $500 or $1,000. And he created, it started out Halloid Xerox, but it became Xerox. Yeah. And they did, a, they did a market study. And this is how much, you know, the, the world knows about technology. And before they came out with the first Xerox machine, they did a, a market study of, from, for the life of the product, how many do you think could be built and sold and manufactured over the life of the product. And they came back and said, in the 10 years of the, uh, of the product being introduced, maybe 20, 18 to 25,000 Xerox machines. <laughs> that was enough. I mean, as far as their, their plan was, hey, that was just enough. They had 25,000 orders in the first 45 days. And yeah, if it wasn't that, if it wasn't for uh, C. Peter McCullough, who was a Harvard MBA who took over from Joe Wilson, he was the one who decided that well we needed quick return on our investments, and uh, so he turned their back on technology if they couldn't if they couldn't bring it to market. Yeah, there <laughs> you go. Yeah, yes. it, it won't it won't focus. Uh, can, the scientific method. There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That's right. There we go. Yeah. Everyone knows what I'm, this is. It's yeah. Beaker. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. No, you know, we're not saying it, but um, yeah, I mean, really, that's it. Come on, go on, do it. 
I, I want to do it old school. If this is even old school, bring, bring, yeah. okay. cover your I'm face. Yeah. Cover your face up. No, no, go the other way. Go the other. No. Oh, they're almost done. No. There you go. Yeah. There we go. Scientific yeah. method. FAFO. <laughs> yeah. Find out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how it's all happened. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think there's a value all the way around it. I think um, learning something, having wisdom versus being told to memorize something are two different things. Wisdom and discernment is not taught in any school. It is something that you have to, uh, sadly, it's something you discover statistically. Yeah. You know, and again, this isn't a, I, I don't think Guy meant to set us off on this at all. I mean, it was just a question. A background question, but I think one of the reasons we're all digressing on this guy is that the, the there is a gatekeeper, and oh well, and uh, it got brought up by Boone, I think, too, is that uh, the gatekeepers of information and knowledge they redirect your discernment, your wisdom. So, what little wisdom that you've learned on your own from making product choices because they don't teach you wisdom or discernment in school, so you're given very limited real world opportunities without your own personal passion to figure things out outside of a skill set or an interest you have and whatever it is that I think that if we did all have a more, I think we're saying this not from a complaint standpoint, but I think it's a, how do we retool everyone? How do we re-inspire people? And part of it's like the expedition we're doing, not to bring it back to the expedition, but mm -hmm. the idea is that education from fines in the field instead of gatekeeping it, but opening it up so that every eye can be on it. And uh, whatever genetic memories or or connection to a collective human consciousness and however we really actually roll as a, as a slightly dormant society with amnesia, there is a chance that if we would all uh, open our eyes beyond, you know, we, we all suffer. I think in semi-speaking for Jim and Wayne, and myself, I think it's true that we all suffer from, we did have a trust that, well, science is factual. It's not opinion that if someone's done pure scientific research, they wouldn't manipulate the data. They wouldn't manipulate the finds or they won't factually only find the facts that fit their theories. They wouldn't mm -hmm. teach theories as facts and never change the theories. And we can look to academic institutions currently and it's easy to see that there's a little bit of pain for all of us to break our own. Uh, uh, you know, we were taught to look this way, and it's like stepping out of it. I think is still hard for me. Every yeah. every position I've had since 1974 required a degree. Some of them required double E's. Some have required masters. My, my last job at the uh, Pacific Aviation Museum, they really wanted a PhD and I got the job. Yep. And like Elon Musk said, I don't have a Harvard degree, but a lot of guys that work for me do. He says, I don't care if you're a high school dropout, if you haven't make it past ninth grade, if you can get the job done, I'll hire you. Um. The, the most critical part and the design that allowed the Blackbird to fly at Mach 3.24 were the inlets. Harry Combs and working with uh, uh, Ben Rich designed the inlet. Here, uh, ben told me that Harry could visualize airflow at any Reynolds number. He just knew. And he says, 
And I don't believe he made it through ninth grade. Yeah. But and he was there, it, he was one of their top engineers. You know, Jim, yeah. Jim, what you said about the not having the PhD when so for a while, or for everyone, I don't talk about this much, but I was a network admin for about four and a half, five years. And I was always into technology because I'm the generation that they didn't they didn't teach us Excel. We learned a program. So basic, you know, yeah. basic two, Pascal. COBOL. I mean, we were learning the languages and they were teaching them. That was required. That was in elementary school. They were teaching us how to program. We were booting up our computers on five and a half inch floppies, not the little three inch ones, the five and a half inch. How about and the eight inch ones? And before that, the 14 inch ones. Yep. No <laughs> cassette tapes. And, yeah. and for me, when I was a network admin, I ironically went to a two year school that was supposed to get you a two-year tech degree. I mean, I went, uh, but ironically, one of their primary qualifications for the, in quotes, degree, it wasn't a requirement, but what they were also doing was supposed to be prepping you for the Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer testing, the MCSE. Here's the irony. Yep. I did the two-year schooling, but ironically, I already knew enough and self-studied for the MCSE passed it on my own also the mcp i was i got i became a cisco certified network administrator and was working on my cisco certified internetworking expert which at the time in the early 2000s there was only about three and a half thousand um, for cisco that existed but the ccie is no joke and the ccna is that was all right the cc uh, the, you know so i was working in a network environment and i have a partial degree in music <laughs> I mean, I've a couple years in college, but everything I did in technology was self-taught. And Jim and Wayne, you you will like this. Here's my actual job. Uh, I didn't take a job that I didn't know how to do. And I taught myself how to do what I had to do in the position. But there was frequently many programming and coding errors. errors. And I was told by the Unix guys, because I was a, a network guy, I was not to touch the Unix stuff. They were very prideful of their Unix. It took them six months to send me to Unix school and I'm doing rumba and I'm doing these archaic mainframe system things that I wasn't supposed to even be on. And I'm learning stuff that's going dating back to the seventies and or, you know, early eighties and control data. And I'm learning how to program this stuff. Meanwhile, this is my job. We bought this other company and all that we have left is this one server disc and well, it's supposed to be integrated into our program. And well, we have some people that spent $60 million because they run their all their stuff on our stuff, but this part is supposed to be plugged in and they're coming to learn it in three weeks and no one's left of the old company you need to work with the R&D guy and we, this all has to work uh, in three weeks. Like find me a school that teaches you how to manage that kind of crisis, yeah. which isn't a crisis. They just expect you to do it. And I would pull together the people and the team. And my job was just to install rock solid code. I was just supposed to take a disc and load it on a computer. I'm not supposed to be patching and working with R and D and the software university system to pull together a class for client servers to work together. Where is that in my job description or anyone's? And whether you had a degree in a bachelor's of science or not, 
explain how you do that. If you're not good with working with different departments and people that I had no business pulling together and I'm not their project manager, but that's some of what I did for four years. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, and, what, and, yeah, no, I think, for you know, when I worked for Xerox, I was a product technical specialist. I, you know, I went in where if I couldn't fix it, it wasn't broken. But we had a mandatory retrofit on one of the big high-speed duplicators. And it was a 16 to 18 man hour job to do. And it was just, it was just a SOB. And there's, and all it was was you had to dismantle all the optics and most of the machine to get to a friggin' light, fluorescent light that was never supposed to burn out. And then you put it all back together. Then you have to align everything. I mean, it was just a, it was just a nightmare. So the first day I'm at my first uh, machine, I'm looking at it. And I says, you know, it's got to be an easier way. So I vacuumed out the ins- inside of the Xerox machine. I put a, a a drop cloth in there. I got my ball peen hammer. I went, shattered yeah. the uh, the fluorescent light. All everything fell down. I vacuumed out. I clicked the new one in. I was done. I took a 18 hour man hour job, and and compressed it to less than 10 minutes. From the time you walk in the door to you walk out. And I did that on a number of different product lines. I had this one product line, I had 125 of them and I had a mandatory retrofit. And it, I was doing it, I was doing it in five minutes. And this again, this was an all-day job, especially if you drop some the, the cables. And I my whole territory was done except for one machine. And my boss, uh, Bernie Blockus, he says, says, I don't believe you've gotten, you've done all your retrofits. I said, go check them all out. You can tell, just open the thing up and look inside. You can see. Says, oh, wait, there's one more at, at you know, this one place that says, uh, we're gonna go fix it. And I said, no, I tell you what, I'm gonna go do it. You're gonna wait in the car. You wait about five minutes after I'm in and then you can come in I'll be done by the time you come in. And I can see them outside the window. So I went in and I, I did the retrofit I did it my own way. Uh, it took me less than a minute. I get all. The, it took me longer to get all the panels back on. He comes walking in. And he says, "I said, well, you haven't even started yet. The machine's still all together." And I said, "Well, look inside. What do you see? How'd you do that?" I said, "It's my secret. I work smart. I don't necessarily work hard." And I was on his list. I'd been on his list for a long time, so I didn't I didn't really you know give a rip one way or the other, but I wasn't gonna tell him how I did it. Yeah. Um yeah. You know, there's so much we do within these corporate structures that aren't entirely related to what they want us to do or or again the necessity of mother of invention. I don't think that's always entirely true, but it, it is that maybe it's a little bit of that scientific method. Um yeah. or uh for those of you that have never watched Drunk History, Drunk um, History, oh man, what a show! Oh. Uh, Drunk History is great. You just get historians super drunk, and then they reenact. Uh, uh, I was going to say, along those same lines, you know, my wife, very sophisticated you know, lady, her favorite program on TV is Ridiculousness. Have you ever seen it? It's almost, it's, yeah. almost, it's almost like. Uh, 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 you know, some you know, some you know, hidden camera stuff. But it, this is stuff yeah. that people have like America's with, funniest oh, home dude, video. Yeah, yeah, but but amped up quite. You know, you know yeah, two hundred 
500,000 volts. I mean, it's just, it's hilarious. And I can yeah. be in here in the computer and I can hear her laughing. <laughs> so well, it's, good, you know, it's good entertainment. Just, just the, piggyback on what you guys are saying and i think this is where the problem comes in is where the education system has been set up to make people basically cogs in a wheel and consumers and not so much innovators. free thinkers yeah. and innovators even though that's what they say and being a teacher myself now for of high school of science which i like i'm glad i teach science is, you know, I teach differently. And with science, I'm allowed to do that because I use hands-on material models. You know, there is book learning and stuff, but I approach it from a premise of, okay, here's the basic rules of a lab. This is what you guys need to figure out. Have at it. Just take notes while you're doing things, you know, and discuss it with your team. And that, you know, it, it it's a totally different science of what it's used to but science classes have kind of changed for for the lower grades the secondary schools but when you get to the higher levels when you start to get into that specialization and things you see the the cog mentality comes in you know you've got to instead of thinking more like a polymath and trying to learn as much as you can like, why wouldn't I want to study frequencies to see how they might affect uh, certain minerals in the earth, but I need to know how to identify minerals using acid droplets and, and scratch tests and things like that. But why can't I branch out into this? Well, no, because now you're focusing on mineralogy. You're learning the structure of minerals and da da da, da. you know, and that's, that's that in the classroom kind of a thing. Why do all the kids sit in one direction? Why is the teacher at the front of the room pointing to a blackboard where the clock is, where the flag, all this, all the, the classrooms are set up to be that, I, I don't know, or pre just pre-industrial, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. 1890s, 1850s thought of, you know, you're really not going to learn anything. You're just going to go work in a factory kind of a stuff. And that's, you know, and I think, uh, I see guy mentioning here something about UFOs, but I think that's where you can see when people don't understand something in the sky, when it comes to like UFOs or the paranormal, you can see how hot, these communities get for that unknown because for a lot of people they think that science is figured out they hear it on the news all the time oh the climate science is decided this is you know it's all over with guys we figured out how to fly airplanes we don't need to learn anything more you know the science is decided and so people take that. And then when they get a real mystery, you can see how people jump on this. Look how well the UFO conferences do, paranormal TV shows. People love that mystery because they want something to figure out. But do they yeah, actually the ever thing. do it, right? Yeah. But to the expedition point now, people, here's your chance to actually participate in something. I mean, we're going we're gonna to be just like... Uh, Explorers, Ford, and Raiders of the, you know, the Lost Ark. We're gonna, yeah. we're gonna be uh, true explorers. Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. So it's gonna be Jungle Jim uh, in the <laughs> Temple of Doom. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. That's fair. 
Yeah. Well, the the way we organize our thought process, the uh, you know, it's funny. It's hidden in plain sight. It's not a conspiracy. There was an established goal of an, an industrial revolutionized society that was stated by many foundations. Well, we need to create a society that's going to be happy and prideful of punching out uh, the same thing repetitively eight hours a day for the rest of their life. That was yeah. a stated goal is to create. We don't want thinkers. We want workers. I mean, it's uh, Rockefeller the third. I don't want thinkers. I want workers. You know, and it's there's no going around it, and so it's not a conspiracy; it's just a fact. So individually, um, everyone has to take it upon themselves. It's like we all have day jobs, and it's like yep. everyone has a point where they have to look and go, "Wait, am I doing what I want? Wait, am I? I am. Yeah, I you are. It. I love Wayne it. is kind of yeah, <laughs> pretty much. You know, in my in my last my last two jobs. I would have done them for free if I was independently wealthy. See, and there's, I, I had there's 10, how you know. I had 10 years at the Museum of Flight. I was I was in charge of the restoration of the world's first commercial jet airliner, the de Havilland Comet. And the one, the one that landed at Payne Field was abandoned for almost 20 years. Fire department used it for fire training for seven years. They'd open up all the doors and hose it down like it was on fire, then closed everything up. And then they sealed it up and walked away. And it was that way for a decade with 3,000 gallons of water inside the, you know, the fuselage of this commercial airliner. And when I got it, my first thought was, how in the hell did I get myself into this? And I need 10 gallons of gas and a match. I mean, it was, you didn't know where to start. So I started at the radome. It was all you know delaminated and everything else. And, and the Brits, they, the comment was made, you know, as a make work job. I was dealing with the component, maybe four inches by, you know, six inches by six inches by six inches. I would have U.S. standard, British standard, and Wentworth nuts and bolts on it. So you needed three toolboxes. It was just absolutely nuts. The tech orders, which I'm used to military tech orders, the tech orders on the comment, it was dealing with, you know, the right-hand engine, well, then you have to go to about 10 other pages or either another chapter to know what you're supposed to do with the left-hand engine. I mean, it was just, uh, it was a real learning experience. And I have 21,000 hours just in the restoration of uh, the inside of the airplane. 21,000? Yeah, yeah. And from there, I got my job at the Museum of, at, not Museum of Flight, at uh, the you know, Pacific Aviation Museum in Pearl Harbor. So this is this is stuff this is stuff I did for fun. I'm I'm a founding member of the Minnesota Air Guard Museum. I got the Blackbird in there, and plus half the other airplanes in there, and it's just something I love to do, and that's what I ended up doing. And you know, this so is fun. and this this is my next chapter. I want to become George of the Jungle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's actually accurate. He will yeah. be. That's exactly right. Yeah, I will get a shot of you then in the jungle with a banana. Okay, that's there fine. I love bananas, so. But, you know, you know, Jim did just breeze through when he said he got that uh, Blackbird into the Minnesota Air Museum by getting it into it. I know you guys have heard the stories about, um, you know, the transport, the cost it should have been, the acquisition. But I, I don't think when Jim says he has bad hearing, he's explained enough that chopping up 
the Blackbird to get it into transport to actually transport it cost him some of that hearing, did it not? Yeah, yeah, that that and a brain tumor. So, <laughs> but the, the one ear that does work, uh, it's all because of airplanes and uh, the, the restoration thereof. So, hey, Jim, we got somebody watching that goes by the name Not Sure on my YouTube channel, and he says, My great uncle flew the U2. What was oh, his wow. name? I may know him. Hey, not sure. Yeah, what was uh, your uncle's name? Jim might actually know him. And then Douglas Boone says, I used to listen to Coast to Coast Radio. That is the crowd who would support your work. Huh? Yeah. You know, so I, I don't bring it up, but I've been on Coast to Coast a couple times. I've been on Richard Richard Searitz, one of the other um I love Richard um, host. Yeah. So I've been on Richard Searitt. I know Richard. And I think uh, that's the first time I ever heard heard you talk a couple years ago, Jared. Richard? Richard, yeah. And then wow. I got him I then I got him on my podcast and he's like, This is the last one of these I'm ever doing. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. So I got him for the last interview. Why? So, that's so interesting. I, I guess I don't know, but I know that he is basically doing his own thing now. He's not on the radio station in Toronto anymore. Well, he has seven podcasts that he does or six. Yeah. And that includes his time on Coast to Coast. And he does a show out of Toronto. And for those that I don't think Richard would care if I said this, but Richard's the only person I've ever met uh, other than myself. My grandfather was in the 13th Tank Battalion. Um his father was in the equivalent Canadian tank battalions that oh, paralleled wow. Patton and the American <laughs> tank divisions into Belgium and Holland. I mean, from, from, uh, you know, landing in D-Day through Belgium and Holland and back to France for Battle of the Bulge into Berlin. Uh, his father was a parallel uh, tank commander. So we kind of geeked out over that early on. Well, that's cool. Um, yeah, so it's weird the connections we all have and yeah. where this all is. This is uh, uh, going extremely well. I don't want to kill or kill the buzz or the party right now, but <laughs> Wayne, how is everyone doing? This is supposed to be an hour and a half, and look at us now. Yeah. I know, almost at two yeah. and a half. Everybody's yeah. doing well, man. Spring break. I mean, I'm still on uh, Las, I don't want to say Las Vegas time, but Laughlin time. So, Oh, look at uh, you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the conspiracy show. Uh, that, that's the one I couldn't remember the name of. He did his last show on August 28th, 2022. Wow. Hmm. The, um, yeah, there's now a number of people out there. Planet and stuff. So, yeah, there's a lot of folks. There's a lot of people we know, like for our expedition, the, um, it's an interesting thing when you come up with something like this and you start where we are, which is, we're just going out and doing it. We're not relying on anyone. It's amazing mm -hmm. how many people want to jump on board after you find something and we will take all the help we can get when we can get it. But yep. But I'm jumping on before we find something. <laughs> yep. I'll tell you, there's a different high five reserve for those that want to commit now. And honestly, all those that are those small donations and those things that still help alleviate a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, you know, we've, we've collected enough donations now. This sounds ridiculous, but in the little bit of money we've collected, it literally pays for three emergency med packs. I mean, look, we have a zillion things to spend money on, but I can tell you right now, the money that we've um, collected will cover for any semi D 
decently skin breaking, catastrophic, bone breaking activity, we 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 will have three emergency med kits. Where in the jungle that those small donations literally could save a life, and and make someone a lot more comfortable while they're transported a couple of kilometers to a boat or a car, and gotten out of there. And the reality is that. Uh, we already have enough donations that if we just isolated it and put it into something meaningful, just as an isolated point of the donations, you literally have protected for something for just a cup of coffee a day. You could help, <laughs> but the reality is that yeah, we've we we have enough money to cover the <laughs> emergency med kits for yeah. thirteen people, and that that that's how significant uh, the help is. So having um, maybe a big donor come in for, you know, the LIDAR expenses or, or the, the incredible amount of time that normal people have taken off. That isn't their full-time thing, you know, to cover this, uh, you know, those are big numbers and they're appreciated. And there's a, there's, there's a different scale to that contribution. Um, it looks like from the, the number, but the impact for $89 is pretty damn amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Jared, and, and just for people watching as well, you know, the the expedition is just one part of trying to figure out this puzzle. And, and we are planning on putting lots of other things together around this expedition and things that we find out, especially like with the work that Jared's done with his book. Um, and so I've actually gotten approval for next year to actually have a a section created and set aside to run my students through for a, for a trial run. So whatever data and things we can get collected, I've been given the AOK -okay to create some lessons based around that. And uh, as long as I can apply a next generation science standard to the work, it's all good. So charts, graphs, maps, uh, all that stuff. And, uh, I'll be running something next year. So I'm actually going to be introducing this material to inner city uh, young kids that probably will never have the chance to get out there. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe one day they will, but you know, the concrete jungle seems to be a lot of their homes and that's where they stay. Their and they gobbles up a lot of good, a lot of wonderful kids too. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just as interested about this stuff as we are and their brains can, because they're not tainted as much as ours, you know, but yeah, they're, right. they can still suck it up when they're young. Yeah. 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 Get, get a quick answer. And, I, and I'm going to have to run here in a second. Also, uh, I'm right. not sure you want to, you know, I asked him if he knew the name of the, his uncle. Or YouTube yeah. He, he said, said Brown. Yeah. I think, think I knew buddy Brown, buddy Brown flew both the U2 and the SR 71. So it could be him. Um, yeah, only met him once in 1970. He says. No, uh, he when he retired, you know, when he retired from the Air Force, he ended up uh, working for Lockheed, and when he retired from Lockheed, he moved to uh, the greater, uh, uh, I think Knoxville area of Tennessee. So, so if he's from the Tennessee area, maybe that's where maybe that's where it's uh, from. Yeah, the uh, you know I think Jim, this was uh, Wayne. We definitely. Uh, I guess killed it this time and there's been a lot of interest and we've talked about our expedition, our ongoing efforts to want to do more expeditions and to do more filming and 
the next round will be a lot different because uh, hopefully this will be a documentary and this will be something that a lot of people want to watch after we record it and uh, work all that out. Uh, Zen, this is a good idea. Haven't done it. Uh, that would be worth doing. Uh, we've been doing a lot of shows about it and doing the GoFundMe. There, there are some private um, groups that we're definitely looking at for different reasons to participate. This is a very, very unique trip since no one's done it in modern times in this area. No one's looked in a hundred years and definitely in the last 40. Uh, but we will, um, you know, we'll keep going down the route for financing. We're all going, we're filming, we're doing it no matter what. Um, and once, once we have video and stills and first person, you know, we've been there, we've, <clears throat> that will make a huge difference. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, Jared, to your point, um, my hat's off to uh, the people that are creating StreamYard. I think uh, one of the best ideas they've had in a very long time that they've had, right? which is working beautifully, is this idea of letting guests live stream to their destinations as well. So not only is your audience seeing this and hearing me able to talk and interact with you guys, but my audience is getting this live as well on two, you know, major destinations for me and my group of, uh, you know, over 6,000 people now on Facebook and YouTube is slowly growing, but you know, uh, yeah, I, it does. Does Michael from dark hour, does he do live stream on stream? Uh, he does. He has the dark, dark hour paranormal on YouTube. Man. You and, need to get uh, him on was, out. I did send out the invite tonight, and okay. uh, this was, uh, and I actually did not talk to him about it, so I did not expect to see him. Uh, Nikki, you know, Nikki Milovic, Nikki Anna Jones, uh, sent an invite. She had another show to do tonight. Um, okay. But yeah, just uh, as many people we can get on here that already have a, a semi established platform, man. It's like a chain letter, you know, that yeah, it's crazy. get people it really interested. Works. Yeah. Yeah. And Zen, Zen, you're right about uh it's not that it's been um uh almost four months in planning uh weekly meetings now where you have 13, you know, 12, 13 different contributors and guests on um a planning meeting that some are very uh uh you know it's interesting. You bring a lot of different personality types together to do something like this and volunteers, friends, and people that uh have never worked together before to create a cohesive team and to get the group on the same page. There's, you know, you think it's just about getting car rentals and like logistics uh, at levels you have no idea that are just, you know, you didn't think would be an issue. And suddenly you got people looking for snake chaps and shin guards. And, <laughs> and before you know it, it's like, well, all right, did someone bring a filter for the spring water or are we like all getting diarrhea? You know, there's a one way to lose weight. Dysentery is yeah, always good, right? <laughs> hey, like I said, the next spring expedition for all of you to be invited on, and we will work it out for uh, what what does participation look like for the greater community? Like there there may be a way to set this up for all of you to to come to the next expedition. That is a fact. It's not a maybe, but that that just isn't going to happen for this one. But there is. Um, it's been a wonderful time getting everyone together, but 
There is uh, satellite mapping, imaging, uh, the daily schedule, the film schedule. There's so many different things that have to be pulled together to make this whole thing happen in reality that it, it's it's quite an interesting event. For the out-of-pocket expenses for everyone coming and their workload and everything else, I mean, essentially this is a this is a tens of thousands of dollars of of two weeks. It's going to be yep. quite a quite a quite a thing. What comes out of it will be priceless. Yes, yes. Uh, right. Jim, yeah, you're out. And Wayne, anything else before we say goodbye to everybody? Nope. Just want to thank everybody for coming and checking out this swap cast of uh, Not Aliens and the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal and, Encounters and, podcast. Uh, and help Wayne, out. You have, you have the uh, GoFundMe link. Yeah, I uh, put it been, in uh, there. I've been 100% reliant. Wayne has been posting it nonstop throughout the chat. Yes. It is there for everyone. Okay. So it's also in you. my show description on, on my channel. So. I should probably add that one in on this one. <clears throat> yep. Add it to your show descriptions for sure. Um, you know, welcome to YouTube 101. That's the next show. Thanks everyone for joining us. We are going to sign off and we will see you next week. And you'll likely see us on other shows. And if Wayne's really short people, you know, I'll, I'll come on your show. Hey, maybe uh, some, well, maybe right before you guys go. Well, if, if we haven't gone insane by them. Well, true. Yeah. Oh, also true. Hey, don't, just pretend none of us said that, everybody. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. So until next time.